time to play ball. Welcome to the podcast with no limits. Whether it be sports, current events, or random thoughts, this is the place to step in and stay a while. Your host is a proud alumnus of Rio Hondo Prep, a former minor league baseball umpire, and a man with strong opinions. Welcome to the Get Home Safe podcast and your host, Matt Persima. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Get Home Safe. Happy Friday to everyone out there as we have another great episode here for you on our Friday edition of the podcast, a long form interview, a conversation, if you will, uh, with somebody that has actually been on this podcast before. He is kind of a fan favorite. When I started this back in March of uh, 2020, when there was a lot of craziness uh, just getting started, uh, I jumped into this podcast world and, and was not sure what exactly I was going to do. But as it's turned out uh, over the past couple of years, I have interviewed a lot of people um, in my, uh, my people who I've met in my journey in officiating, uh, different colleagues, uh, people that I've crossed paths with. I, I've talked to a lot of people from my alma mater, Real Hondo Prep, because so many of them have gone on to do great things. And it's fun to kind of reminisce about the old days and everything. But uh, one of my favorite episodes I've ever done was back on June 9th uh, of 2020 with uh, Mr. Tony Padilla. And Tony Padilla is coming back on the show today. Uh, for those of you that remember, Tony is an NCAA basketball official, works a ton of conferences, is uh, located out here on the West Coast up in the Sacramento area. Um, he is a, a big time college basketball official, uh, so big time that he just finished working his third Final Four here in 2022. Uh, yes, he was there uh, in, in New Orleans. I believe that's where it was uh, in New Orleans. And he was selected of the 11 officials to work the final four spread out amongst the three games. Uh, he was selected to work the North Carolina and Duke semifinal game. So it ended up being uh, Coach K's final game that uh, Tony Padilla was a part of, as well as the other members of the officiating crew. So uh, we're going to bring Tony back on today to hear about what it was like at the final four from an officiating standpoint, as uh, is really the only standpoint I, I, I care about. Oh, I shouldn't say the only, but the one I care about the most as a former official myself. Uh, I got on my high school CBOA uh, shirt here for the Foothill Citrus unit. I was just a high school basketball official who tried to survive on uh, Tuesdays and Friday nights, whenever the games were uh, not always uh, my best work for sure, but it taught me a lot about myself and how to be a better official in other sports. Uh, I was much more of a football and baseball guy, and my experiences on the basketball hardwood definitely helped uh, pave, uh, pave my, my direction uh, in, in many different ways. And, and I'll say I, I was uh, privileged to be chosen to work as a replay official in college basketball, uh, specifically for the Big West, and that is where I met Tony uh, as uh, seeing an official come in of his caliber and just uh, learning a lot from those guys. Again, not, I was never going to be a college basketball official, but I enjoyed assisting those guys in instant replay. And uh, Tony was so gracious to come on the podcast back in June of 2020. And uh, I said, Hey, when he got selected for the final four again, he's had two, two before this, right? It never worked a national championship game. I was really uh, praying fingers crossed. He gets selected for that one, but he got the semifinal again. So I'll let him tell us all about that. Uh, the, the conversation we had back in June, of 2020 again it was a long-form conversation talked about his career and kind of how he 
uh, you know, rose through the ranks and how he got started, as well as his baseball side that not many people knew about. I mean, he, he coached, he, he played a little bit. He knows a lot of guys in professional baseball. We'll talk a little baseball today as well. It is springtime. Uh, college basketball is behind us, but we're going to recap some of Tony's journeys from the past couple of years in college basketball, as well as some behind the scenes stuff. You know, what's it like uh, in travel here? Where are some nice places you like to work? Just stuff like that. Hey, this instant replay thing. Everyone seems to have an opinion about it. What's it like as an official? What are you guys looking for? So I can't wait for this conversation again. Uh, just the best in the business. That was the title back in on June 9th. And Tony, I still feel is uh, one of the best in the business, but one of the best people in the business of all of officiating. And so I've had a privilege here to talk to some really high caliber people in the officiating world. And I'm just so thrilled that he's willing to come back on here and talk with me. So let's not waste any more time. Let's jump right into uh, hopefully another long conversation with Tony Padilla as we dive into the ins and outs of college basketball officiating at the highest level. Okay, it is my privilege once again to have back on the Get Home Save podcast, Mr. Tony Padilla, who is fresh off of working uh, his most recent final four, his third. He worked the North Carolina versus Duke semifinal uh, about a week and a half ago. Tony Padilla, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Great to be back. Tony, I have to tell you that, you know, back on June 9th, 2020, uh, your episode is still one of the most popular ones I've had. I've done hundreds now. And I ask people sometimes, hey, what's your favorite podcast been? And they go, they rattle off names and they go, that, that basketball referee, he, that was really in, interesting and intriguing. I, everyone has said that about you, sir. You're very famous. Well, I don't know about famous, but it's good. To, I'm glad to hear that. You know, you, you do these things and you never know how they're going to turn out. And I'm just, it's refreshing to know that it was a popular podcast and that things went well. And I'm glad I can inform the public or the viewership or whatever it is that how it really kind of works out. If there's anything that people want to know, you know, I'm pretty open to most of that stuff. And a lot of people don't really realize what goes into this, but it's great to know that there's interest in that. And anything I can divulge is fine by me. Well, I think uh, in any officiating, you know, we want people on our side. We want people to be knowledgeable yeah. and not just, you know, be on us all the time. So, uh, yeah, you do have it's nice to have a, a group of people that that are fans of yours, Tony, because most most nights you don't have any fans. No, except for the other two guys, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like I tell people all the time, you know, the, the funniest part about officiating is at least half at least half the people on the floor are going to, are going to be happy with the call you made. Yeah. 50% aren't 50% are, but uh, you just hit a key <laughs> word though. Knowledgeable. That's something that, that the, you know, fans that go to games just don't have the knowledge that, and that's probably why they're more rabid and things like that. You get fans that are very knowledgeable and you get fans that aren't so knowledgeable. And it's funny to, when you talk about that, because you know, I, I, we, we, we as officials talk about what fans are really knowledgeable and what fans aren't. I probably, I'm not going to mention the fans that aren't, but I will say this, the fans at San Diego state are very, very knowledgeable fans. They are, really? they really kind of understand the game. Yes, they do. It's surprising there. And I would say probably the second place they really understand it is Kansas, Kansas. They get it there, but there are some places that we go to absolutely the most ridiculous unknowledgeable people you'll ever deal with in your life 
Well, so, that, uh, yeah, that's kind of a common thing in, in, in fans and fanatics and everything. We're going to definitely uh, apply some knowledge today, give some knowledge out to some, some people listening. We'll talk about some plays, some points of emphasis, stuff like that. Uh, but first, Tony, I got to ask you, man, you just were selected to work your third final four. You worked the Carolina, North Carolina Duke game. Um, what, what was that like? First of all, getting the selection, you've done it twice before to get this big assignment, uh, third final four. I know you were kind of, as, as we were probably hoping that you'd get that national championship game, but, uh, tell me about the, the assignment process and getting your third final four. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I did back-to-back final fours in 16 and 17. And you always, you know, after you go, you're, you know, you go through this void of not going back to a final four, you're always thinking about all the things that maybe are keeping you from doing that. And I can honestly say I made a horrible call in 2017. I mean, one of the worst calls I've ever made in a basketball game. And it's such a bad call. I really have a hard time watching that game. And it didn't, it didn't really impact the game, but it was a really bad call. And ever since 17, I thought, okay, maybe that one call kept me out. Maybe the way there was a certain coach out West that I did not handle in a, in a game very well in 2018. And I know that that kind of kept me out of 2018. And I was fine with that because I didn't handle it very well. Um, in fact, I handled it horribly. So I thought maybe that's keeping me out. And then, you know, you're constantly looking at yourself and you're constantly looking at film and you're thinking, what is keeping me from going to another final four? Is it the way that I do this, is it the way I do that? Is it the call from 17? Is it the way I didn't handle this coach in 18? And to finally get selected and go back to do another final four, it was like, okay, I can put all that aside. I can push it back where it should be. And think, okay, I was finally selected again, and now I don't have to worry about all those things. So I guess a call from 17 didn't really impact my officiating career. It's just the way it is. Sometimes you are, sometimes you're selected, and sometimes you're not. But so that side of it, it was really, really nice to know that everything worked out, and I went back to another Final Four. Because, I don't know, it's weird. You get your first one, you want to do another one. Of course, I want to do a national championship game. And it's weird, because we think of, okay, there's going to be 70, you're going to referee in front of 70,000 people. I mean, another close to 20 million people watching at home. There's going to be, all your peers are going to be watching. And trust me, 90% of your peers are hoping that you're going to fail. So with all that being said, this is the game that we want to referee, right? This is a competitive nature that we are, that we have, that all of a sudden we want to referee this game. And it really doesn't make any sense, but we do. And I can't explain it, but that's like, where we're at as far as being the competitive people that we are. I don't know why we're, we're like that, but we do. So getting back to that, it was big for me to get another final four, but yeah, we're selected. It's, it's funny. People think that this, the whole thing is played out like weeks in advance and it's not, we find out week to week as to when we're going to work and, and what site we might be going to. So for, we found out uh, Monday, uh, before the before the NCAA tournament that we'd be working. I was selected to work in Fort Worth for the first two rounds. And then I worked in Fort Worth. And then ne- the next Monday, I think it was around three o'clock in the afternoon, I found out I was going to do a regional. And then I, so I ended up working in Philadelphia and I actually did the North Carolina U- UCLA game in Philadelphia. That was a sweet 16 game. And then it wasn't until Monday about, I think it was around one o'clock 
I don't know, somewhere around there that I was going to work the final four. And when you, you get a phone call from JD Collins, who's the national coordinator of officials telling you that you're going to work. And then they tell you right there with that you're, that you're going to work either Saturday or Monday. So then the guys that are going to work Monday, they know they're working the championship game, but the six guys that are working. So those are three different guys. The guys that are working on Saturday, the six guys, we don't find out what game we're going to have until the lunch meeting and the lunch meeting started at 1230. And at the end of the meeting, probably 130, 145 is when you find out your actual assignment. So I worked, I ended up finding out that I was working the second game. And I think that game time was 745 or something like that. But the first game started at five o'clock. So they didn't find out till 530 or till 130, 145 that they were going to work at five o'clock. So nobody knows the six guys. And my phone's blowing up all morning. What game do you have? What game do you have? What game do you have? I have no idea and didn't find out until then. So, so that's how the whole process goes down. Wow. And, and is it like the, when you, when you go the first, second round and you go to the regional, the sweet 16 and the elite eight for, for us fans, uh, is it, is it like the teams were, Hey, you work Thursday and Saturday or Friday and Sunday. You generally have the two assignments like that. So for the first two rounds, uh, you're, you, you're notified whether or not you're going to work two games or just one game. So it'll tell you, um, it's, it, I, they've changed it a little bit. I don't think it was in the email this year. It just said, you've been selected to go to the uh, Fort Worth site. And so then from there, you get a phone call from, from one of the site coordinators saying, okay, you've been selected. This is where we're staying. And you've been selected to work two games. So you know right there when he calls you how many games you're going to, to work. And then for the regional sites, um, there's 36 officials that are selected to work and this is the pool. So the pool of 36 are the guys that are eligible to work the final four. So mm -hmm. in the, in the regional rounds, the 16 and eight, you either work a 16 or an eight, but you do not do both. So, you know, that when you were going to work the regionals, you're only going to work one, one game in that, in that. So you're not, it's not like you're going there to work a 16 and an eight. You work oh, a 16 okay. or an eight. Yeah. The guys that work 16s do not work eights and the guys that work eights do not work 16s. So that's how they fill out the, the roster of 36 guys that are selected for the regionals. And then out of those 36, they select. Now they're doing 11, uh, nine guys that actually work on the floor and two alternates. They've been doing two alternates since they, since the bubble last year uh, because of COVID and uh and that's how they go about. So they've been selecting 11, uh, 11 out of the 36. So the 36 guys that work regional rounds are eligible to work the final four. Wow. And, and I've always wondered kind of these numbers and everything. So, so this is a, a big help for someone like me. He's always trying to figure it out. Uh, but tell me this, Tony, do you happen to know off the top of your head, we could probably look it up. How many division one basketball officials are there? You know, that's a good number. I, I've been told 950 and i don't know if that's true or not i know there's a i know in our west coast consortium i believe there's 160 right give or take so i've been told 950 and that number might not be right it might be less it might be more i don't know but that's what i've heard 950 so so let's let's call it a thousand i mean it's definitely in the high hundreds with the different regions of the, of the country and everything so of those hundreds almost thousand uh, officials uh, you are among the 11 selected for the final four. That is a, a huge uh, accomplishment, uh, you know, accommodation, whatever you want to say it. And, and you talked briefly about 
you know, why do you want those? Why do you want those? Everyone's going to be scrutinizing you and your peers and everything. But it's a quote I heard a long time ago. I, I should know who it's from. I don't. And you and I talked, said this off the air, uh, you know, a few weeks ago when we were texting, I said, pressure is a privilege. And I really think that sums up getting those big games assignments in any sport. Yeah. I, you know, you just go through the year and you work, you, I, you really work hard. I, and I'm probably a little bit over the top as far as my preparation for games and the things I do. I mean, I really go overboard. I watch so much film. I probably watch too much film, honestly, <laughs> but I, I'd rather be over-prepared than under-prepared. And, and I, I don't, it's just kind of become a routine for me. And as far as like what you said, per, um, pressure is a privilege. I mean, it really is. And I, yeah, those games go to the, what they feel are like the best, the best referees. And I know there's probably a million fans out there that probably think that, Oh, this guy shouldn't be working at all period. <laughs> not, not a, let alone a final four. That guy shouldn't be working on a JV high school game, but <laughs> I mean, obviously I'm fooling somebody and, and, and it's just like, you just look at the hard work and you look at the body of work and I'm sure that that's what they look at. And, and, you know, people don't realize how, how much, uh, how much our games are graded. And so the NCA has regional observers and then JD Collins, who's the national coordinator I've used to say before he also game grades games during the season. So you'll get an evaluation from JD Collins or Bill Kennedy, who's the regional observer out West. And then I even go to the Midwest and work quite a bit in the big 12. And so I'll get uh, evaluations from Ted Hillary, who's a regional observer out there. So people would be amazed at how serious the evaluation process is. And then out West, almost, I think, I believe every game in the WCC, the PAC 12 and the Mountain West conference are game graded by former officials who are retired. And, you know, those games, every game is game graded. So we're constantly getting feedback from what plays we're missing or positioning, things like that. So there's a lot that goes into it. It's not just by happenstance that you just are working a final four. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of information that's gathered by the top people and the committees and those types of people that that end up. That's how you get to a final four. Well, and and, and yeah, the, the the details in which they scrutinize at times or grade. You know, it's fans can say, "Oh, that was a bad call," but sometimes the the evaluators they will they will talk about four or five things that happen right before that or the aftermath of a play and really break it down and, and something that, that the, the casual fan can't see. So yes, people want to complain on their couch all the time about how bad the referees are in this tournament or that tournament, but uh, mistakes are made by everybody, players, coaches, everyone. And, and the officials, I think work harder at getting it right than people realize when I was doing instant replay with you guys, I mean, it was instant access. As soon as the game's over, Hey, here's your iPad, here's your game film. And you guys, would, would almost every single one of you immediately go to play. Let me see that play in the second half. And you guys just are constantly analyzing and breaking down plays to get better. And those are the things people don't see. No, they don't. And I would say about 70% of the referees are very critical of themselves. I mean, I am probably the biggest critic of myself that, that you could ever imagine. And I'll tell you what, there's times where you miss plays in close games and it, it might impact the game significantly. And I'll tell you what, I don't sleep for a couple of days. It's really hard to get over that stuff. And it's really hard to kind of 
push through it because you think, gosh, there's so much at stake and these kids work so hard and the coaches work hard. I mean, everybody's in this and they value, you know, they, it, it's like, there's a big value on the importance of this. And it's important that, that we place the same value as the kids and coaches are. And with that being said, it's hard. It really impacts you when you miss plays. And I think that's important for fans to understand. It's not like you just go, I screw them, you know, who cares? I got my pay, paycheck and I'm moving on. No, there's a lot of officials that really, really take it serious. And they, and they should, and rightfully so. Definitely. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, you feel, people feel bad for the kid that misses a, a, you know, a free throw, uh, two free throws when, when they're down by one. Uh, but, you know, it's the same type of feeling that the officials have. When they, they have to hold themselves together, but an official, as, as to, to, to your credit, you, you talked uh, from an accountability standpoint about that play in 2017. I mean, it, it carries with you. It's five years later, and you could still probably remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, so, yeah, there's so much that goes into it, and no one cares more than officials. But, you know, fans and coaches, they don't want to hear that stuff. They just <laughs> – they're always looking for a target. It's, Matt, it's funny you say that because we never think of all the great calls we made. All we think about are the bad ones that we made. Mm. And those are the ones that stay, stay with us the longest. I mean, I've had a lot of really good calls in my career, and I couldn't tell you the, the ones that I've made that are there, but the one in 17, like that one sticks out. Yeah. There's a number of plays that really stick out. Oh, definitely. I, I, I can relate. I've seen yeah, a few, few pitches here and there. I'm like, ooh, really? Uh, but uh, anyway, the, back to the final four. So you're working North Carolina and, and Duke, two just blue blood, big-time programs, the, probably the best rivalry in college basketball. And here they are meeting in the final four for the first time. Uh, it's, it could be coach Assessi's last game. It was uh, take us into the building. What was it like? Was there kind of, did it feel different with all this kind of atmosphere going on? Was your, was your family there? Take us through that Saturday, if you will. Yeah, I'll, I will say this, the vibe in the arena, well, the stadium more instead of an arena, the vibe was different. I mean, it was, it was, it was truly different than anything I've experienced before. And, you know, you go to your first final four and you're thinking you're, you're a little bit, wow. The wow factor is, is incredible. <laughs> but like when you walk in there and there's 75, I mean, I think my first one was in Houston. There were 75,000 people. I was looking around like, Oh my God, this is insane for a basketball game. But anyways, it was just different. It was totally different. And the vibe at the hotel and the vibe around the town about, first of all, you had four, probably classic NCAA college basketball teams at the final four was Villanova being successful the last few years, Kansas's basketball history, of course, Duke. I mean, you can't say enough about Duke's history in college basketball and of course, North Carolina and all the big wigs were there. I mean, everybody was there because it was coach K's last go round and the vibe was insane. It was just, it's hard to put into words how different it felt, but there was, you know, you could feel the pressure. And what's interesting is a lot of the officials, including myself, that were working games in the tournament, were like, I hate to be the guy working Coach K's last game, unless he wins, of course, right? If he wins, great. If he loses, and I remember Jerry Pollard, a good friend of mine, he's he worked the regional game, and, and, and that was a hard game. And we were talking about it on the phone about how tough the Duke-Texas Tech game is going to be. And... You know, then all of a sudden, here's Duke, North Carolina, and I'm thinking, well, I'm a Big 12 guy. I'll probably end up working the Kansas game. And then when I hear that I'm working the Duke, North Carolina game, it wasn't like a nervousness came over me. It was like a shell shock came over me. Wow, 
I never thought I'd work at Duke North Carolina game because I don't work in the ACC. And then here it is. Now I'm going to work the first time that they've ever matched up in a final four. And this being coach K's last year. So it was different. It was, it wasn't overwhelming because in the grand scheme of things, you still have a job to do and you got to go out and do it. But it was just the vibe there with all the teams that were there. Coach K's last go around the, the Duke, North Carolina matchup, the city, the, like I said, the city, the hotel, everything about it was just different. It was different than any final four I've ever been to. So um, I was lucky. I had my, my, my two brothers are huge supporters of mine. They're, they're, they're both of them are very knowledgeable at college basketball. In fact, if they were ever going to be game graders, they'd be really, really good at their job. They'd be great at it. <laughs> I mean, cause they're like, my brother busts out his phone afterwards. He goes, okay. So we went back to my room. He says, okay, I got some plays for you to look at. <laughs> okay. So that's how critical they are of me. So not only do I hold myself accountable, but that, but they were excited to be there. So, and then my wife was able, I was able to get her there. Getting into new Orleans was really, really difficult. In fact, we usually go in the, the day before, but we had to go in Thursday because there were no flights available on Friday. So the town was buzzing. I mean, usually you work out trades with the other guys or with other people about getting extra tickets. And this year tickets were really, really, really tough to come by. I know I heard guys selling scalpers or selling tickets outdoors, you know, cause we were right around the corner from the arena for like 3,500 a game for average seats. So yeah, it was different. It was definitely different than any final four I've ever been to, but it was great. I got to so my son was there, my wife was there and then my two brothers were there and had a great time but it was different this year Matt no doubt about it it seems like every final four you go to there's some unique quality about it and this year being all this extra stuff about everything that went on at the at this year's final four just made it even even a little bit I wouldn't say tougher but more remarkable is a better word oh sure I mean and then after all that you eventually throw the ball up and it's just like a, 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 a Tuesday at Sacramento state. I got to imagine, right. Just a, <laughs> it's just a basketball game, but it's, it's a lot more than that. I know it's, it's, you're right though. It's like, as soon as the ball went up, you you're out there and all you see are 10 players and two benches and a, and a, and a scores table. And what's weird about it is like all this backdrop and all that, you don't even see it. It's like all of a sudden you get real big time tunnel vision. And that's all you see is just that everything kind of shrinks and the game slows down and then you realize okay this is just another basketball game i've done you know hundreds of these these games so just do your thing and referee i know it sounds cliche but that's all you try to do is just yeah, just get plays right if it's a cliche it's it's for a reason you know and and yeah. uh was it was it all kind of a blur do you remember anything uh I don't know if we can go to anything that was said by, I mean, what was the vibe? I mean, it was coach K and, and Hubert Davis, a legendary player and himself too, to, uh, you know, pretty as, as all the coaches are really, uh, was there anything specific that jumped out, uh, from, from the game that you remember? No, not really. It's funny. You say that. That's a good point though. Uh, it's going to sound like we really rehearsed this and we really didn't. We talked for about no. a minute and a half before, but it's funny you know, your first final four, you kind of, you're kind of trying to, take it all in and you forget a lot of things because your head's spinning. And, and I remember Tommy's, I worked my first one with him and he said to me just before we went out, he's, he handed me the ball because they were going to let me throw it up. And he handed me the ball and he said, get ready for the fastest two hours of your life. 
<laughs> and you know what? That's exactly what it was. It was like a whirlwind. All of a sudden it was over and we had a blowout. It just so happened that Villanova beat, uh, they beat uh, Oklahoma really bad that year. And it was like a 20 some point game. So you don't really, you're just kind of there and you just kind of go through it and all of a sudden it's over and it goes really, really fast. But it's funny this year, this game in particular, I, I felt like I was more not involved, but more like my, my intensity level, my concentration level was at its greatest because of the factors that were at play. And this is such a big game. And like I said, the vibe was just different that I think when it was like that, I felt like a need to be really, really good that night. And so with that being said, that's what I remember. I remember all the plays from the game. I remember uh, the only thing Coach K really got on me about was he. there was a play in the game where he thought Brady Manick was out of bounds. And when you're out there on the floor, you don't really realize it. But then I saw the replay, and Grant Hill made a big deal out of Brady Manick that he did not go out of bounds. And I was telling Coach K, hey, listen, Coach, he was not out of bounds. He had his heels above the line. He swore he was out. And it was refreshing to see on the replay that TV covered the fact that he was not out of bounds. So that made me feel better. It felt me, made me feel like I was exonerated from that. But <laughs> what's interesting, here's one, the one thing I remember really well, is I remember calling Hubert Davis Hubert the whole time. And I had had him the week before, so he was Hubert then. And, you know, Mick Crona, I had him, and he's always Mick. I could not get myself to call Coach Krzyzewski Mike. Couldn't do it. I referred to him as coach the whole game. I don't know why, if it was like a fear factor thing or if it was just out of respect, but I went over to talk to him and introduce him, introduce myself. And I've had him once before. And it was like, I went over there and I said, hi coach, Tony Padilla. He says, yeah, good to see you, Tony, blah, blah, blah. And so couldn't get him to do that. That's one thing that really sticks out is every time I, every time I talked to him, it was always coach. I never, I didn't say coach K or Mike. I just said, Hey coach. So that's very, very refreshing in my brain is doing that. Oh, that, that is interesting. Yeah, that, that is interesting. You know, for those that don't know, the officials and coaches are on a first name basis uh, during games. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a lot easier. It's a respect thing too. It's a, Hey ref, it's a, Hey, Tony, come on. You know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a constant discussion conversation through for two hours sometimes. And so first name basis is, generally how things work so that, that's yeah. an interesting little little tidbit there uh let, let me ask you um tony as far as the 2022 tournament versus the 2021 tournament uh how refreshing was it uh in comparison to last year the bubble year in indianapolis all the games were in one city uh take us through what that was like for you guys last year i didn't even think about oh, all the officials are probably in one spot and and this and that it was a tough year um, from the standpoint of you didn't know, not, not just the NCAA tournament, but games were being canceled. You know, we had to change travel plans. You might get into a town and all of a sudden that game was canceled and your next game was canceled. And then you had to get to another town, but all that was different. But this is the first year we were back to being normal in the NCAA tournament. And it was, it was so much better because there was a sense of normalcy in the whole thing. The year before in 2021, so what happened was once we were done with conference tournaments, so I wrapped up, let me make sure of this, I wrapped up on Saturday in the Pac-12 tournament in Las Vegas, and of course, no fans. Now, we weren't really in a bubble, but we were told, hey, listen, don't, 
go out, don't fraternize, try to stay away, try to get your food to go. And, and that's what we did. We basically ate in our rooms. I didn't go out in Vegas hardly at all and maybe go out and walk, but stay away from people just to go out and walk, get some exercise or whatever. So then all of a sudden now we're in the bubble in Indianapolis. So we flew in, we had to fly in the day after. So that would have been on Sunday. So I flew from Las Vegas to Indianapolis. Uh, they picked us up at the airport. They had a, uh, oh no, we were responsible for getting there. So I took an Uber from the airport to the hotel and we had to quarantine for two days. So I got to the hotel at about four o'clock in the afternoon in Indianapolis on Sunday and had to quarantine until 9 p.m. on Tuesday night. And they would literally, you, you, you had to fill out a menu uh, online and they would bring it to your doorstep and they'd knock on your door and that meant your food was there and they deliver food and they told you what times it was going to be. I mean, it was literally in a hotel room. Now, some of these guys' rooms were tiny. I luckily got a corner room and my room was pretty good size so I could at least move around and stuff. The view wasn't so good. It was a brick wall next door, but that's where we were at. And wow. I want to say I was there. I, I know I think I was there for 21 days. Is that right? Maybe, maybe even a few more. I know I was there for three weeks and that's it. You're in your room. The only time you went outside was when you were going to your game and we didn't start working games. Now I, I was the alternate one night on a, I believe on that was, and they changed the way they did. It. They played Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday instead. Yeah. So the tournament went a little bit longer and you were in between games a lot longer. So you were locked up in this hotel room. So, and then you had to test every day. So this is what my day was, was like, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go down and I would test. And then I would go back to my room and I'd maybe catch up on emails or whatever. And then I'd go downstairs and I'd eat. And if you weren't working that day, basically you stood, you sat around all day. Now you, we could fraternize with all the other guys. You could go down, they had TV set up, but pretty much guys were just hanging out in their rooms because man, there was nothing to do. There was absolutely nothing to do. You know, nobody thought nobody was smart enough to think about bringing chess sets or cards or anything like that. We just showed up and like all this stuff would be there and there was literally nothing to do. Now, the good thing about it was I got to spend time with a lot of people from around the country that I don't really get to spend time with that are other referees. And I got to know some guys that I didn't really know. And some of them were like, I mean, you're thinking like they're almost like soulmates. You can't believe how how much you guys have in common and what you in the in all the things that we were able to talk about and share is really kind of refreshing. I remember there was a day that we were in the one room. There were 12 of us in there just talking. And it was unbelievable how cool that was to get to know other guys from around the country. But I mean, we were locked up in that hotel, the same hotel for three weeks. Some guys left early because they were only going to be there for so many games. But I think I worked my last game on a, I don't know, Monday night. And I found out on a Wednesday that I, was, that I wasn't going to stay for the final four. And I mean, I was out that door and, and gone, but it was a, it was a real, uh, it was quite the experience. It was, I, I won't say that it was fun, but no. I mean, we had a job to do and get it done with, but, but at the same time, it was really, it was a tough ordeal to be locked up and, and, and incubated like we are. I mean, we had a workout room. We could go do things like that. And I ran on the treadmill quite a bit, but 
other than that, we got out twice. We got out to the AAA ballpark in Indianapolis there. We were able to go. It was like, I mean, it was like we were on lockdown. It was like we were prisoners. And we had an hour getaway twice when we were there. We got to go to the ballpark. They had all kinds of things out there. We throw the football around, play wiffle ball, do all kinds of other things like that. But those are the only two times that we were allowed outside the whole time yeah. we were in Indy. You're like a sequestered jury, basically. <laughs> it was like it was pretty much like that. Yeah. Sitting in that room and then go out. Okay, now you've been isolated by yourself. Now go out and do a, do a good job uh, where it requires a lot of focus and everything. Uh, uh, mentally, that had to be just draining. Oh my goodness, it was it was tough. And then you, and then you know then you're having to you're sitting there daydreaming all the time in your room, and then you got to go focus for for two hours and really focus. And I don't know, it was almost like a it was it was a it was an interesting experience i can't even tell you how oh, how it was but it was i hope i never have to relive that let's just say that. oh yeah i i hope uh we don't have to relive a lot of a lot of stuff like that what yeah, uh no let kidding. me ask you you've already kind of you've already painted a little picture for us behind the scenes if you will at the tournament uh kind of a normal year this year or was a normal year in 2022 so what was it like those those weekends when your first or second round you're 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 either 16 or 8 um what are those weekends like kind of what's kind of the 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 routine the rhythm of uh of those uh, select weekends for an official So okay so I was let's see I was at a Thursday Saturday site so I flew in on Wednesday and it was kind of cool this year it's nice that I have a, my my kids I have a 27 year old son Zachary who lives in Houston and then I have a daughter that's going to school at Northeastern. She's 23. She graduates this year. And then a younger daughter, Carly, who's going to graduate from high school this year. And it's great. My kids really enjoy still being around their dad. Just, I don't know what, what to say about that. It's a, it's a great thing for me. So my daughter was on spring break and, and she was just kind of having nothing to do. And she says, hey, I think you're going to end up in Buffalo. What do you say? I come over and hang out with you during the NCAA tournament. And I said, Oh, okay. I don't know if I'll end up in Buffalo. Let's hope not. But if I do, that's fine. <laughs> so then I go to Fort Worth and she's like, Hey, can I still come to the tournament? I said, you really want to come? She says, yeah, I do. So it was cool. She flew down. So on Wednesday, basically we get there on Wednesday. She got there the same time we went over, but for the most part, um, you get there Wednesday. We had a meeting Wednesday night. And because the game starts so early in the first rounds, we used to have a breakfast meeting for Thursday and they tell us the assignments in, but now it's a late, it's kind of a late meeting. I want to say we met at seven or eight and they go through all the policies. We watch a video uh, that JD puts together and the committee guys introduce themselves. We know all the logistics of the arena, who's picking us up, who's doing what, get our credentials and then they give the game assignments out. Seems like the game assignments are always the last thing they do. So <laughs> then we get the game assignments that that night. And pretty much you just you're on your own other than that. You know, you're always coordinating. I, we, we we become huge creatures of habit. I'm probably really bad about that. I mean, I'm a big ADD guy. I like to stay in the same places. I like to fly in the same flights. I like to I even like to rent the same rental car. If there's a Nissan Maxima out on the lot. That's what I'm driving because it's so familiar. So without that being said, you get your game assignment. You say, okay, I'm working at four. I want to eat at 11. I want to go over here and eat because I eat that food all the time. I won't, I know it won't upset me or anything like that. So you just, that's what you do. So I would go 
plan your day after you get your assignment. So if you got to work early, it's a little different. But if you work later, it's different. So um, just got my assignment, planned my day for Thursday. And then on Friday, you're off because you're not going to work again until Saturday. So Friday, you just kind of find something to do. And we ended up, my daughter and I went and we found a place like a little sports bar that had great food. Gosh, the food was so good. And we ended up going down there and then a bunch of other referees showed up. And it seems like the all, I think there were six of us that were there for, for Saturday. All six of us ended up gathering over at this one spot, just hanging out, watching games, getting some food and hanging out there all day. And then uh, one of the guys, somebody always sets up a dinner. We always go out for a really nice dinner on, on the off day. So I think we all went to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, the guys, and a lot of guys brought their girlfriends with them or wives. And we all ended up going, uh, having dinner that night. It was a great, actually, that was a really good dinner. It was, it was a great, again, the camaraderie of all this, you get to see guys that you don't see from the East. And there's some guys that I really, really admire and appreciate that live out East. And so we spent time there and we had a good group of guys there in, in Fort Worth. So that's how that round goes. And in the first round, then I went to Philadelphia for the second round. Now this one, I had to go by myself. So you fly all the way across the country. I get there on, uh, let's see, when did I get, I get there Thursday sometime again, uh, meeting that night, they did the meeting that night. And I don't know why they usually do the regional meetings in the morning, but for some reason they did it that night and they had a reason for it, but I can't remember what it was, but I flew in, went to the meeting, uh, it's kind of tired. So I think I, I think I went to bed pretty early and then just woke up the next day. I walked around Philly quite a bit, just walked around, walked around, put in about, man, I must've walked like six or seven miles that day just to go around and see things. Got something to eat, went, did the game, come back. It's a late night. And, and then you, I, yeah, cause our game was the second game and it, oh no, our game was the first game. I can't remember. Anyways, you go out, it's a late night, and then they make you get out as soon as you can. It's like, they don't want you around anymore. You do your game, and it's like, okay, what time, what's the earliest flight you can get? And I was on a 7 a.m. flight, and I was out the door. So I flew all the way across the country to work one game and then back. So You're that's done. an interesting experience. Yep, that's what it's like. <laughs> like, okay, you no, did your and, thing, and- now leave. Yeah, you're you're just equipment. You're whatever. Uh, and you talked about your ADD. <laughs> hey, you sound like a base. You sound like a baseball guy here with the uh, the superstition, Tony. I knew you had some baseball in you. That, that's I think that's where it comes from. The hey, uh, you're on a hit. Don't mess with a uh, with a winning streak or a hitting streak. You got to have the same sandwich every day or whatever. So that's yeah. where I think that comes from. I that's a good question, Matt. I've been like that ever <laughs> since I can remember. I, I, I get so much crap from. Mike Reed is a good friend of mine and Mike Cyphers guys that I, I, that are my peers. I really admire and look up to these guys. Give me the worst time about the things I do. I, I'm, I'm a little bit over the top. So like these guys love to do, they do all their laundry on the road. Okay. So they'll go out and they'll pack like, you know, two sets of, of gear for the, for, for, you know, a 10 day trip. And I can't stand to do laundry on the road and I can't stand to wear the same stuff over and over again. There's some guy, I'm going to, I'll be the first one to admit, there are some people out there that wear the same gear and don't wash it over and over. I'm not going to say who, but they do it. (laughs) Now I'm the complete opposite of that. As soon as a piece of clothing touches my body, that's the end of it. I'm not wearing that piece of clothing ever again. So when I go out for games, I have, 12 sets of uniforms 
So I have 12 shirts, 12 pairs of tights, 12 undershirts, 12 pairs of socks that I keep and they're all together. Okay. So imagine when I go out on the road for a long period of time, so I might go out for a big 12 swing and then kind of work my way to a tournament or something like that. I take 12 sets of uniforms with me if I'm going to have that many games. And these guys give me the worst time about that. And everything's marked. I have my socks marked. I have my tights marked. I have shirts marked. It's really kind of, it's really kind of obscene what that I do. That is hilarious. But oh, I don't man. know why. It just, it's it like, it keeps me in a routine of, and it's like they say, well, you get, why don't you just do laundry? Well, you know what? I'd rather watch game film or sleep instead of doing laundry or I'd rather just relax instead of trying to trying to finagle my way into finding some laundromat or you know the worst thing is if you I mean it's not that I've never done laundry but it you know when you have to do it and you go down and you're at the hotel and you go down somebody else is doing their clothes now all of a sudden your timeline is all messed up I I want to avoid that at all costs yes it's one less thing to do. I hear you. And it's tougher for baseball guys with all the big, big, big gear and everything. Basketball guys just have a few shirts, some slacks. You're good to go. So you bring that stuff home with you, right? You're not throwing it in the trash can? No, I bring it home okay. and my poor wife has to wash all of it. <laughs> I just drop it off. I, I keep it all separate. I drop it off and then I just go, okay, I'm going to sleep. I, I don't have to wear up. Let's see. I'm, I get home on a Sunday night. I don't have to work till Tuesday. I drop everything off. I'm going to say I'm going to be right here in this bedroom the whole time until I got to leave Tuesday. <laughs> well, you mentioned that earlier. You like being overprepared rather than underprepared. That makes subtle sense. Yep. Uh, and yeah, talk about, if you will, like we talked uh, postseason travel. Uh, talk to me, if you will, about uh, in-season travel. Sometimes you leave for two weeks at a time. Some some fans think, oh, there's just a game once or twice a week, but you're working uh, six, six nights a week in general. And, and kind of what is, what does your travel look like? Do you go to a game, come home all the time, or is it always on to the next place? No, you're always usually on to the next place. Sleep, sleep deprived, you know, you're sleep deprived so, so much while you're on the road. And, you know, it's like other guys work other sports and like baseball umpires. I mean, they travel quite a bit. They're gone a lot. I mean, it's incredible how much they're gone. The MLB guys, and, and, and the NBA guys, but the NBA guys have to go in the day before. We don't have that. That's not a policy for us. So we just go in, basically we're going in the day of games. And there's times where, where I mean, you're cutting it close a lot. And if you have a little delay in your flights or things like that, it can get really kind of dicey from time to time, or you get some weather issues. It's, it's, it, well, it's well, most not- games- most games are seven o'clock ish, you know, the game's over late. You can't really fly out that night anyway. So your, your game the next day is probably sometime between five and seven or whatever. And so you got to get that early flight. So it goes from a a late night to a really early morning and then not much time to catch up on sleep. And then you're doing the exact same thing that night, another late night, early morning, right. Just kind of over and over again. That's exactly it. I mean, you, you talk about, that's why I think it's important to have a routine. I mean, it's almost like, you know the, the old cliche groundhog day it it gets like that you just show up to a new arena and you're working a game and i now you know it's funny because there's this big thing about about us working too much and this is something that's been coming up and it's been coming up as of late and i'll be honest with you i i don't feel refreshed one of the funniest things is that is that we go through the entire season working four five six nights a week right especially during the conference season i mean i don't think i 
I don't think I did three games a week during the conference season the whole time. So now the NCAA tournament rolls around. I worked Saturday. Then I didn't work again until Thursday. Then I worked Saturday. Then I didn't work until Friday. So you're going all this stuff. And I'll tell you what, it takes a couple minutes of getting out on the floor to get acclimated again with the game. When I'm working every night or five, I'll say five nights a week, because that's pretty much the average. When I'm working five nights a week, I really start to feel like I'm, man, I'm really seeing plays great. I really might. It's the opposite with me. I feel more energized. My concentration, my focus is so much better when I'm doing more and more games. It's like I'll be on the road. I remember I think I did seven in a row this year. And I remember in game seven, I was thinking maybe I'm going to be a little tired. I got out. It was a tough game. And I was like, so I was really, really good that night. I remember this. And I was thinking, wow. Yeah, and I don't know if it's because we focus more, we concentrate harder because we're, we're, we've been out, or if it's just that it becomes second nature about that. But the funny thing is, during the Final Four, when you go a week without working, it takes a couple minutes. You get out there and you start running around. You're like, okay, i got to get my bearings. Maybe that's why this year was different. I, I remember saying to myself, I'm going to really focus really concentrate from the get-go. I'm going to get all that other stuff of not working out of my system, get the rust off, so to speak, and I'm going to really concentrate. And I noticed right from the get-go this year, I was ready to kind of roll, but it's different. And and I really feel that working a lot really helps me. It's a positive rather than a negative. Yeah. You know, that it's so interesting to, to hear that. I think we talked about that in the last pet podcast uh, back June 9th to 20. Uh, is it different sports again uh, they, they have different kind of ways about them basketball baseball i think you stay ready with repetition really whereas mm-hmm. something like football it's a one day a week sport you spend five or six days preparing and talking about it and making plans whereas in basketball and baseball you work so much of it almost daily that it's it's repetition and just alert and being aware and, and yeah your body and everything is just falls right into that you know it's it's those extended breaks where your mind and your body is like, Hey, wait, we're supposed to be doing something right now. Right. Yeah. You did baseball. I, I, and I played, I couldn't even imagine what it would be like to get behind the plate after not calling balls and strikes for say a week. Cause I mean, seeing those pitches and seeing it is really important. And the other thing that people don't understand, especially in baseball, because, because, you know, I got that little affiliation with the triple A team here and I sit at the dugout and watch games and you know, the, the speed of the game is incredible at that level. I mean, the speed of the game at the professional level and the college level is just different, but this, I'll tell you what, the thing that I'm so impressed with are baseball umpires and their strike, their ball strike, this percentages of pitches that they get right, because the speed of that is absolutely mind boggling. I don't think people, that's the part of the game. I don't think people appreciate is how good those guys are behind, behind the plate. I, it, it's it's amazing because the speed's so fast. But I would think that repetition, like you said, and seeing it at a consistent basis is really, really, really important. Oh, yeah. And everyone needs an off day. I mean, off days are great. You recharge. Sure. But an extended break is kind of where it's like, okay, now we start to you know lose focus or whatever. I, I'm a firm believer, Tony, that basketball is the hardest sport to officiate, but calling balls and strikes is the toughest thing to officiate in all of sports. I, I believe both of those are true. That's my opinion though. <laughs> no, I think you're hundred percent right. I, I I'll be honest with you. I don't know. I, I read 
you know, I, like I watch a lot of baseball and I see a lot of baseball and I, I'm intrigued by the, by the, uh, the umpire side. We're always intrigued by the sports officials that work in other sports. And I remember reading that there was a, there was an extra inning game that went on. I think it was last year, maybe the year before. I don't know. It went 13 innings and the guy had a decision on, I don't know. It was something ridiculous amount of pitches. It was like 500 and some pitches. And the guy missed four pitches out of 500 pitches. He missed four. That's it. I mean, that, that to me is remarkable how a guy could do that. And to think about it, when these games go extra innings, it's easy to let your guard down and just say, okay, I'm just going to take an inning off or, you know, lose your focus. This guy grinded it out for, for however many hours it was and 500 pitches. And Lord knows how many foul tips there were. He's getting drilled and, you know, all that fun stuff. And you're, I mean, you're grinding it out back there and it can't be much fun, but four pitches. That's, that's, it's incredible. Those those misses are, are this much, not yeah. by this much, you know, they're yeah. super tiny. And uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, those extra inning games. Oh boy. Much like an do you think, do you think when he missed those, pitch, do you think when he missed those pitches, he looked in the dugout and said, Hey, my bad. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm being sarcastic about it, of course, but, but I mean, four pitches, that's it. I mean, yeah. The coaches, yeah. And I, and the funny part is, is like you said, we, we were talking about earlier, the knowledge of fans, uh, maybe they, you know, maybe they're getting on in the whole game. Who knows? Or maybe the coaches were riding them. I don't know. Well, it's hitters remarkable are funny. balls and strikes. Hitters have been funny to me. In my experience is that they, <laughs> they're like, that wasn't there. That was off. But I mean, it's like, okay, maybe it was, maybe it was an inch or so off the plate. I, I, I believe that you truly do believe that, but are you that good as a hitter to be like, that's one inch off. I can't swing. I'm like, I don't know, man, with two strikes, like that's, that's a close pitch. I, I, you're leaving it up to a human being, although, although they're talking about, you know, these rubble umpires here, which I'm not a fan of, but, you know, give me a robotic Neither shortstop too. You know, what, what are we doing? You know? Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because we're, I just played golf with the MLB umpire the other day, Brian Knight. And he says that he thinks in the next four years, you're going to see it robotic umpires. And I think they're going to, it's going to deteriorate the game immensely. I'm, I'm not a fan of that. I think there's gotta be some human factor involved. Um, whether you like it or not, the, you know, it humanizes the game. All of a sudden we're going to say, okay, baseball is going to be robotic now. I don't know. It just kind of brings it down to it or it just takes it to a level that I, I don't, I just don't want to see. No, I, I don't either. I think it's a bad uh, slippery slope. We'll say, I mean, re- replay is something that is now in all sports. I mean, I'm watching my buddies work college baseball. It's at every level now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter the conference. I mean, replay is here to stay, but I just think, the the automatic uh, ABS automatic ball strike system is uh, is a bridge too far. It's just it's just we don't need to be doing that. But uh, then again, people at high high uh, places are making those decisions. Uh, let me ask you, Tony, a little bit. Let's 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 break down some some philosophies and some basketball terminology. Um, you know, one thing that's nice about the NCAA tournament is that when you guys do go to replay, or even if there's just a weird play. There is someone uh, who, who CBS goes to, TBS, uh, they go to Gene Steratore, who's a former mm-hmm. college basketball official, former NFL official too. Uh, I like that he is involved. There's someone who can kind of educate the public uh, on these TV. Uh, first off, how, does, how, does, uh, how do most officials uh, receive kind of someone like Gene Steratore dissecting their plays and their decisions? 
Well, from my point of view, I think it's tremendous because like we talked about knowledge, I mean, they're giving the fans knowledge of what we're going to do. And most of the stuff that we're going to do always involves a rule. So there's not really an interpretation as far as when we get to the monitor or it doesn't really become judgment at that point. I mean, it can when it comes to flagrant fouls, but for the most part, we're going to look at things that are going to be concrete. And I think what Gene does is, is he's able to give the public uh, a viewpoint of what we're going to do, which is tremendous. So, you know, there's, there's certain things that we can only do at the monitor that, that, let me, let me, let me rephrase that. There are certain things that we are allowed to do at the monitor that we cannot do. We can't change anything. So like we can look at timing plays. We can, you know, the time of plays, we can look at under two minutes. We can look at out of bounds plays. We get to use it for the arc goaltending, things like that. So what Gene does is he, he makes the fans understand this is what they're going to do. And it's great. I, I personally enjoy it. He, and he's not critical of the, of the calls we make. He's just explaining, here's the due process of what these guys are able to do. And I think it, it, it gives us a little bit of a break and it, it, it gives us an, it, 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 he gives the fans an opportunity to see a viewpoint that not very many people usually have access to. And I, I think it's absolutely tremendous. And the great part about this is, is that, now, Gene was at the final four. Usually he sits in a studio and, you know, he's got all the games going on and he's trying to watch all of them. So he's, that's how he's handling all that. But at the final four, he was there and he was adamant. I, like I went out, saw Gene. It's the first time I've seen him in a while. And he says, anything comes up, you guys, please come over here and explain it. Give us your viewpoint. Give us this. this. And there was one situation where Bo Borowski, one of the guys I worked with, he actually went over there and told Gene, this is what we're doing and this is what we're going to decide to do. So there's a lot of mutual respect for each other. They don't want, they, they're kind of trying to explain it. They're not trying to throw us under the bus. They're trying to explain it the best that they can. And they want to know the outcome. And during the season, we do that with the color guys too. We'll go, you know, they'll, they're the, the color guy and the play-by-play guy will say, Hey, if anything comes up, please come over here. And they almost beg us. And there's a big mutual respect for that. But as far as Gene goes, absolutely love it i think he's great for the game and great for that and the other guy the guy who's the best though and he's on the football side is mike Pereira, and we we've talked about mike before i love being around mike and just talking officiating with mike is is incredible but i think guys like that are great for the game great for it oh mike mike you know uh i was again privileged enough to come on uh when he brought on some uh, officials to work at fox nfl studios for that first year in 2010 and we did it for 10 years of course, uh, COVID kind of shut all that down now, but you know, Mike's a Sacramento guy like yourself. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you, you guys maybe run into each other a time or two and talk to uh, officiating philosophies. Yeah. Mike's a big golfer. So he's, it's funny every once in a while, there's a golf course right down the street, Del Paso country club. And I'll, I'll go over there and play with a buddy of mine. And Mike's always the guy hole in court right there. There's a table, right. As you walk <laughs> in, there's about 12 seats at the table and Mike's always at the head of the table hole in court. And it's funny, I'll walk in and I'll say, you guys don't listen to him. He's full of shit. He doesn't know what he's saying. <laughs> he does. He has no clue. Mike will look up and start laughing. Then we talk. But no, Mike and I run into each other from time to time. He only lives about a mile away from me. So we run okay. into each other quite a bit. And, you know, there's there's been a time or two where, you know, I think the football guys 
are the best people at communicating to coaches. I really do. And there's been situations where I've, I've reached out to Mike and I said, hey, Mike, tell me how to go about, like, it seems to be there's a big, big clash between me and this coach. What can I say to get him to start listening to me instead of me listening to him and him not listening to me? which I think is critical when it comes to communication. Cause sometimes, uh, you know, there's a, there's, there's just a, there's just a block there and you can't get through yeah. to guys. And I, and, and Mike's been able to help me through that a couple, you know, for, for a couple of situations that I've had to deal with. It's very interesting because um, football, you know, baseball, they come out, they argue basketball, you're running by them, you're switching sides of the floor and everything, but football, there's one or two guys who are on that sideline and you can't escape. Mm-hmm. So you better learn how to have a conversation or, or maybe sway a coach one way or another, or it's just stand your ground uh, or you're going to be, you know, eaten and swallowed up. And Matt, here's the other thing, probably 75, 80% of the time, you're not even talking about your own plays. He's yelling at you about somebody else's play. And that's, that's even more difficult in baseball. Yeah. You can be more direct in basketball. You can be direct. You know, there's times where coaches would get on me about somebody else. I say, hey, whoa, 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 wait a second here. That's Matt's play. He'll be over here. You can talk to him about it because I don't want to do that. I don't want to, you know, throw somebody under the bus like that. But in football, I guarantee you that guy's got to listen to him talk about, you know, maybe a back judge's play. And it's like, how do you go about doing something like that? It's tough. Yeah. So this brings me to a point. I, I, I almost forgot to, to write this down. This is a mechanic. Look, at, you work in the games. I'm not. But this, to me, uh, is is very relatable in this area. I I don't like that in the men's side of Division One basketball or college basketball, the calling official always goes opposite table instead of table side. Now, to me, I'm a football guy. I I just like I think it escalates issues. It escalates to me uh, my perception. It escalates a coach having to scream across the floor or talk to the official closest to him that didn't make the calls. We just said, whereas in other levels of basketball, the calling official, you stay on the table side next to the bench and have to either diffuse the situation yourself or explain yourself. What is your take on going opposite table versus staying table side? Boy, great question, Matt. I I'm a big fan of going table side, but the problem is, is that they did it for, I think either one year, maybe it was just one year, maybe two. I can't remember. They changed the mechanic and it was a while ago. I want to say, over at least over 10 years ago. And they noticed that the biggest problem they had is too many coaches, or I mean, too many officials were spending too much time explaining to the coach what just happened. And I don't know if it was because of the nuance of doing it or if it's just because referees didn't know how to talk to coaches. I think when in those situations, shortness is sweeter than going over there and trying to belabor a whole conversation about, well, the defender did this and then the offensive player did this and then this happened and then this happened. I, I, I think that a lot of the biggest problem with that was the officials ruined it. They did it and it wasn't working out because officials were spending too much time over there and trying to explain themselves. So I think they went back. Now the women do it, the NBA do it, they do it as well. So there's got to be a way to do it. But I don't think that in the on the men's side, they haven't embraced it well enough. And, you know, the, here's the other thing. I don't think a lot of people understand this. The coaches make the rules. The, believe it or not, the officials have no person. There's not one referee on the rules committee. So when you talk about mechanics, positioning, 
these are coaches making this, this, all these decisions, the decisions about changes in rules, you know, like maybe the RA or how many, when you can go look at certain plays on the monitor or anything like that is all generated by coaches, nothing but coaches on the rules committee. Now we can offer recommendations, but as far as rule changes go, the coaches decide. So obviously the coaches have decided, Hey, you know what? We don't want those guys over here so they can go opposite and we don't need to talk to them or, you know, but it, it also, I mean, I had a call this year where I called a foul and well, I'll go back to a few years ago. I don't know if I said this last time with Lorenzo Romar, I went over and I made a call Lorenzo Romar, who's one of the greatest coaches as far as talking to, and just a great person, tremendous person. One of the guys I really, really respect. Yeah. When he was at Washington. Washington. Yeah. I made a call. It was a horrible call. One of the worst calls I've ever made. And I walked over and before he wanted to scream at me so bad, I said, hang on, Lorenzo. I reported the foul. I walked over and I said, okay, before you say anything, I want you to know that I think that's the worst call I've ever seen in any basketball game I've ever been to in my life. I said, wait a second. It's the worst call I've ever seen. I won't even go that, that I'll say it that far. So I just want you to know it's really, 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 really bad. And what do you got to say? He didn't say anything. He just walked away. So you got to show some humility. But I think getting back to your point, I think a lot of guys just don't know how to have a good conversation over there. And that's what led to us going opposite. But it would be better to go to go table side to explain yourself. I've seen I've seen crew chiefs uh, occasionally. Uh, I've seen Mike Reed do this yourself, do this Mm -hmm. Uh, certain plays in games where you where you will tell whoever, you know, when it's your play or whatever, you say, no, I'm going table side because there's a time where you have to go there and take control and not be however, you know, 50 feet away after making the call during free throws, you're standing next to the coach. And, and, and I also, I also want to say this about, I, I, I always watched officials and everything. Right. So um, there's times as an official, you got to talk to a coach while keeping your eyes on the floor. That's your job at all, at all times or the field or whatever. But there's also a time when you need to look a guy, look a man in the face and have that eye to eye conversation and, I think some guys struggle with that. And do what do you think of all those points? What, what are your thoughts on kind of that uh, experience, I guess? Oh, I think you hit it right on the head. There, there's, that's where being, having experience is important. You've got to know when you need to go defuse something. You've got to know when you've got to be direct with the coach. I mean, sometimes you might make a call. I've walked over to coaches and, and said, you know, hey, I missed that play. Or, hey, that was a hard play. I mean – the, the most important thing is how spontaneous you can be to diffuse an entire situation. And that's what's really critical in basketball. I've worked with young guys that I know coaches just want to, they, they want to get after that young guy and they know, and your job as a crew chief is to, is to really try to diffuse that coach. I'll never forget. I was at USC one night and I was standing right in front of Andy Enfield and there was a really hard play. It was hard. And I don't know if the guy got the play right or not. All I know is it was a really hard play. And so Andy jumped up in the air and he came down and I turned right to Andy and I said, Andy, hard play. Whether he got it right or not, I don't know. But Andy, that was a really hard play. And you know what? Just by saying that, Andy started to realize, okay, that was a really hard play. And instead of him just thinking about, I'm going to get to that guy and I'm going to tear him up. And that young guy having to try to defend what he just did, 
you got to try to diffuse that situation as fast as you can. And I think just by being honest with Andy and saying, Hey, that's a hard play. I think he'd start, it kind of sunk in that, Hey, that was a really hard play. And maybe I shouldn't get to that guy. And the best part about the whole thing is like you said, you, you were a replay guy. As soon as I got in the locker room, I got my iPad out. I opened it up. I looked at the play and you know what? He got it right. He got it right. And the next time I went to Andy and then I had Andy, I went to him and I said, Hey, I looked at that play. And that official got that right. And you know what? You give that guy, that younger guy, some credibility. And that's what it's all about. You got to pass on. You got to be a good partner while you're out there on the floor. You might not like the guy you're working with, but you got to be a good partner. I mean, I would say, I, would, I shouldn't say it like that, but I mean, most of the guys that, are, that I work with are all really, really good friends of mine. So, but, but you, you've got to be out there and you've got to be a good teammate. You got to be a good crewmate and you got to do what's right for the game. That was the big, biggest thing that Dick Cartmel taught me as, as one of my mentors is that you got to do what's right for the game. You might not like it sometimes, but you got to do what's right. Oh, legendary. Uh, yeah. Legendary official for sure. There in the, in the past, uh, many, many great. Probably years. One of him. The, yeah. Probably one of the best guys to out West to ever referee. We got, uh, there's a lot of basketball. I, well, I want to talk to you about uh, flopping. I want to talk to you about uh, instant replay, excessive contact guidelines, all these types of things. Uh, but I, I if, if memory serves me correct, Bill McCabe, who, who you and I both know, uh, McCabe yep. was a supervisor of officials for a long time. <clears throat> Were you on a play at like, was, I want to say it was Oregon or something, where there was a situation, end of the game, buzzer, did a shot go or something. <laughs> I don't remember the details. I just remembered your name coming up. Washington State. It was Oregon at Washington State. So what had happened was, uh, this is a funny story. Oregon's, let's see, Washington State scores with 0.3 seconds on the, on the clock. And uh, three Washington State uh, bench players ran out onto the court, and then a fan ran out onto the court. Now, there's a, <laughs> there's a rule in there that says that the and I can almost quote the rule. It's been a while now, but I can almost quote it where it says, if the, I can't, I could probably pull it up, but um, it says that if, if the play, if the, if any of the players running out of the court basically dips, disrupts a live a ball from becoming live is what it says. And so what had to happen was Oregon grabbed the ball, ran out of bounds to inbound the ball. And they were standing there and the guy's trying to inbound the ball. And there's a guy trying to run down the sideline of the court and he can't run because the bench players that came out got in his way. He's trying to run. And so <laughs> next thing you know, Washington state's up two with 0.3 to go in. the. I think this is at in regular. No, this is at the first overtime. And now I was with Mike Littlewood and we had to, we had to call a technical foul on Washington state because they promptly delayed the ball from becoming live that's the rule so they delayed the ball from being inbounded the guy's out of bounds trying to inbound it the guy's trying to run around and all these guys on the court impacted whether or not the ball could become live so we gave washington state a technical foul two free throws they make both free throws this is an interruption of play washington state got the ball back oregon goes on to win and i'll tell you what we had everything you could imagine thrown at us as we were leaving the court everything you could imagine being said to us, everything you could imagine. I mean, every threat in the world. And Bill McCabe was the boss at the time. And I'll tell you what, it was so refreshing. We get inside, Mike Little was referee. He goes, okay, Tony, get in the rule book, start finding the rule, this and that. Bruce, you do this. 
Um, I'm going to call McCabe on the phone. Tony, as a matter of fact, call Mike Reed. Mike Reed is the greatest rules guy in the country. Call Mike, see what we need to look at. Um, do this, do that. I'm going to call Bill right now. So he puts Bill on speakerphone. And Bill being Bill, who's one of the most calm individuals of the world, he says, yep, yep. Hey, boys, how's it going? Not good. Okay. Um, hey, yeah, seeing how that thing went down at Washington State. Hey, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. We'll, be, we'll get through this. And it was like, all of a sudden, your, your emotions are sky high. And just by talking to Bill that little bit, everything just kind of calmed down. And you just knew it was going to work out. And it did. Yeah. But at the time, it was not fun because you're on the road. But that was, a, that was an interesting learning experience. I, Mike Littlewood's now the baseball coach at BYU. And every time yeah. I see Mike, we always talk about that. It's that Washington State. Oh, God. That's Some, crazy. Yeah. But, you know, having to make unpopular decisions is uh, kind of the nature of the business. And even though the ball, the, the clock was stopped, the ball was still live in that situation. Yeah. Point three. They have no chance. Uh, yeah, that's hilarious. I had that's that's where I think the story came up. I was I was um, about to go work a BYU series and, and McCabe was telling me about. Oh yeah, Mike Littlewood used to be NCAA official. He goes, listen to this yep. story. You'll appreciate this. <laughs> he told me that. I went, oh, you got to be kidding me. But you're right about Bill. I mean, he he's Santa Claus. He's just the nicest, calmest guy. Oh, and um, he was on this podcast. That was a ton of fun talking with him about his uh, officiating career and and from a supervisor standpoint too. And he's done he's done a lot of stuff. I mean, he, not only did he did he had a great career as a, as a football referee, college football mm -hmm. referee. And then he spent time in the NFL. And that's how I got to know Mike Pereira really well was through Bill McCabe. And then now, my, and then Bill's son is a white hat in the NFL or in the uh, Pac-12. Pac-12. Yeah. His son, Mike. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a Bill's that relationship I've had with Bill is absolutely tremendous. In fact, there's five guys that, that really, really impacted my officiating career as far as not non-officials. And Bill's certainly at the top of that. He really had a lot to do with my success on the floor. No doubt about it. Oh, Probably man, one of the Bill. best human beings. He's just, you can't even say enough good words about Bill. Amen to that. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you uh, about a few plays and terminology. Uh, you know, we just made it through a, a pandemic. I think there was a new pandemic the past couple of years in basketball, and that is fouling of three-point shooters, Tony. Uh, I, I don't know if it's getting called more, if defenders are doing more. Uh, I, I watched so many games in the tournament this couple, couple weeks ago, and I swear every every game had a couple times where three there was three-point uh, shooters getting fouled. I was like, I don't understand fouling a guy that far away from the basket. So uh, am I seeing things? Is it happening more often? What's going on? No, it's a good point. Um, there was a point of emphasis this year. There's, and there, it's both on the offensive side and on the defensive side. So we really haven't done a very good job of protecting shooters out away from the basket. We have a tendency to call more fouls as they get closer to the basket, you know, because I don't know, I don't know why, but, but from looking at film, we have done a poor job of protecting shooters in the shooting from three point arc. And let's be honest, there's a lot more shots being taken from out there too. That's kind of where the game has gone. I mean, you look at some of these programs, you look at like Arizona and Gonzaga out West, and then you look, you know, you can work your way back East Kentucky, a lot of three point shooting programs, but anyways, so there's a lot of shots being taken and there's been a point of emphasis of really protecting the shooters, letting them go. You know, they're a shooter from, from start to finish. And what I mean by start is as soon as they start upward all the way back until they come back to the ground. So 
there were a lot of things in the NBA's done it too, where, you know, a lot of guys were just kind of running up on shooters and not letting them land. So there were situations where they'd come down on feet and they'd come down and they'd, you know, they'd touch the legs or they'd touch hips or they'd touch, you know, they'd get a little piece of their elbow as they were going up to shoot. It wasn't much, but it was really impacting three-point shooting. So there's a point of emphasis of, hey, we got to do a better job of protecting these shooters. Okay. With that being said, they also notice, and we'll kind of tie into the flopping on this, that a lot of the three-point shooters were kicking out their legs. So when they'd shoot the ball, so for instance, um, a, you know, a right-handed shooter would shoot and he'd kick out his right leg and trying to fool the referee into getting us to call the foul. Now, what they what what really has impacted this is that when they kick out their leg, if the if imagine this, if the if the if the shooter's shooting and the defender's running perpendicular towards the towards the shooter and the guy kicks out his right leg and he trips the defensive player, even though the defensive player wasn't going to hit him at all, we've been told to call those offensive fouls. So we're supposed to protect the shooter, but also protect the defender who's defending these plays. So we're supposed to not, not call a defensive foul on that and call an offensive foul on the shooter who's kicking out and causing the contact. So basically, whoever initiates the contact is who we want to penalize for, for the foul. Now, I had a play, in fact, I had a play in the NCAA tournament where, and I can't remember what situation it was, where the guy, and it was in the Kansas Creighton game, and a Creighton guy kicked out, but the, but the contact by the offensive player did not initiate me to call a foul. There wasn't enough there for me to call a foul. So I remember I was running up and down the floor and everybody's looking at me like that should have been a foul. I said, no, and I was making a motion like he kicked out and the offensive player caused a contact versus the defensive guy. And I remember looking at it on film, I was thinking, man, I look like a complete fool trying to run up and down the court, kicking my leg out and get down to the baseline <laughs> where I need to go. But so that's kind of where they've gone with that. Now to tie into flopping is a lot of guys are shooting shots and they're coming to the floor and they're trying to really fool the referee by, by just laying down. And so that's pretty much where the flopping stuff has come into play. You're seeing a lot more flopping from three-point shooters who are going up, defensive players get close, and then they lay down and try to fool the referee. And believe it or not, as much film as I watch, I would say we're still getting fooled 50% of the time. 50% we call a flop, which is correct. I would say 50% of the time we penalize the defender and he should not be being penalized. You'd be surprised how many times we miss that play. A lot. Interesting. No, it, it, it seems like, and it's, it's gotten to be a tougher play to officiate because it's not just that obvious hit on the elbow. It is. Mm -hmm. and, and with an airborne shooter, I mean, you got to remember this, he's, his momentum, uh, an airborne shooter, he's not going to the basket where he has momentum carrying him to protect him. An airborne, airborne shooter generally goes straight up. So any little bump on him could throw him off and, and, and be uh, significant contact, I guess we'd say. So for the fans, we're like, oh, that wasn't much there. It's like, it doesn't take much when you're airborne to, uh, you know, knock, knock you off your base. Correct. And we, we always talk about this. I talk about this quite a bit in my pregame. This is one thing that I really believe. Shooters are very vulnerable in that spot. And because they're not really in a position to defend themselves. I mean, they're airborne. They're trying to shoot. They're trying to score. And with that being said, you, you have to, we have to do a really, really, really good job to protect them because they're so vulnerable. It's not like they're taking matters in their own hands where they're, they're driving and a guy steps up to take a charge and there's a lot of contact. In this situation, 
they've separated, they've got open, and now the onus is on the defender, except for the kickout. But the onus is on the defender to stay away. And I think it's really important to protect those people when they're the shooters when they're in that position. That, that'll tie it. Yeah, this will we'll tie it all in here with the flopping. So you mentioned flopping from the standpoint of, uh, of, of a, a jump shooter. Um, but first of all, the, the, the flopping call is a fl- is is it the same for, say, a block charge? Is it the same? penalty for hey we have a flopping is it a violation right and is it a team warning how does the flopping aspect of the game uh policed or or enforced okay so so from what we've heard is that they the coaches really want flopping out of the game they want it just completely out of the game now so the way the rule reads now is that we give the team they get one warning and it it's kind of convoluted in that it ties into other warnings too so if there's a delay a game warning that that also kind of ties into the class B technical foul. That's for, it, it kind of gets complicated, but anyways, as far as flopping goes, if we call a flopping foul on, on the home team or a fl- uh, I'm sorry, we call a flop. So we give them a warning, we go over and report it to the table. And then any, at, at any time during the game, if there's another flop against the home team, it becomes a class B technical foul. It's one shot. And then we go back to the point of interruption. So it's really, it doesn't really impact the play that much or impact the game that much. It's just, they're trying to do their best to get it out of the game. Where we're seeing all the flopping stuff is pretty much three point shooting and block charge plays. You see it quite a bit in block charge plays. The thing about block charge plays that are interesting when it comes to flopping is that if, if there's contact and a guy's flopping, I just go with a blocking foul because I feel like, why should I just call a flop and enable there to be contact on a play. If the guy's not going to stick his nose in there and really take it, I'm I'm not going to reward him by calling basically a flop. I'm I'm going to penalize him for getting out of the way if there's contact. So guys running in, there's an offensive player gets airborne, he decides to bail, and there's contact on this guy who's a shooter. Again, I'm going to protect a guy, guy who's in a vulnerable spot and reward him instead of instead of penalizing him. So, so what I mean by that is I'm going to take the higher of the two penalties. If I can call a block on a play that a guy flops, I'm going to call a block every time. I'm only going to call flopping on plays that maybe a def- offensive player spins off a guy. He's trying to fool me. So the way I referee flopping, and I try to get this to my guys that I work with, is if there's a situation where that defensive player or offensive player is trying to fool the referee, I'm going to call him for flopping. If they're, if they're, you know, sometimes there's enough contact where the guy goes down, but I'm not going to penalize either guy. But if they're trying to fool us into calling a foul, that to me is flopping. So, so let me unpack. I hope that. I explained that well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And let me unpack a little bit more of that. So if a guy is legal guarded position, so he hasn't really done anything uh, to warrant a blocking foul. Um, but he then flops. Sometimes you will then go with, with the personal foul, with the blocking foul rather than a a flop. And then on that, on the flip side of that, are there any situations where you just have a play on, you just say, Hey, that's nothing. Get up. Or if a guy goes down and there's no whistle, do you then have to have a a flopping warning? No, you don't have to, you can kind of, you can kind of digest how much contact was there. I mean, I had a play, I think it was in the NCAA tournament. I had a play where there was some contact and 
the guy went down and everybody said that should be a flop. And I said, no, there was contact there, but I don't think it warranted a foul. I mean, you know, that's the thing people don't realize. Talk about knowledge of the game. There is, there, there is a bunch of written places in our rule book that talks about incidental contact or marginal contact. I mean, incidental and marginal contact aren't fouls. They just happen to be, they're in the book to explain that there is such a thing as incidental and marginal contact. You see it a lot in rebounding. You see it a lot in screening. You know, if you set a really good screen, there's going to be contact there. It's not going to be illegal contact, but the guy's the guy who got screened is going to hit that guy, and there's going to be contact there. Our job is to decide whether or not it's illegal or incidental. So there's a lot of incidental contact. So like you said, we can judge it that that's not a flop. I think the best way to, to call flopping, and it's, you know, you, you got to remember, this thing's only like two years old. And <laughs> is for me is I go with, is he trying to bait me into calling a foul? And if he's, if I feel that he's baiting me into calling a foul, I'm going to call this. The other thing that tying all this into, you know, what's really interesting is that there's these plays that we call fool to referee plays and the hook and hold play who now we call flagrant fouls on. That was a big, that was a play that I think that started and they said, well, you know what? We did a good job with that. Let's try to do this with flopping to get it out of the game. The hook and hold has really disappeared from the game. You rarely see it now. And I remember you used to see it all the time. And that's a fool to referee play. The old hook and hold was uh, every once in a while, uh, an offensive player will be running through some screening action and he'll actually reach up and grab the guy's arm and pull it to act like he's getting held. And you know what? We would fall for that 90, 90% of the time. We've gotten really good at acknowledging that that guy is starting that contact. And therefore, he's actually hook and holding the guy. And rather than penalize the defender, we can penalize the offensive guy now. Well, and, and that and was a big fool to the referee's play. And to discourage it, like you said, it's new. That's why I'm asking a lot of these questions, too, is because it's a lot flopping, mm-hmm. the hook and hold. That stuff is pretty new still. And, you know, most people don't know about it. But so the, the other thing is with the hook and hold, it's not not only to discourage the offensive player with just a common foul. The hook and hold always gets upgraded to to a flagrant one. Correct. If we if we feel and 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 we can always go to the monitor. So if we call a foul on the floor, we can always go back and look and decide if we're going to upgrade to a flagrant one. We can even go if we call a foul on the floor and we go, let's say I call it on the defensive player and the coach says, wait a second here, that guy grabbed my guy. He didn't go look. We want you to go look at that. First thing I do is I say, hey, coach, okay, I'll go look. But if you're wrong, it's going to cost you a timeout. And he'll say, I don't care. I want you to go look. So now if we go look and he's right, we can take the foul off of his player, the defensive player, and we can assess a foul on the offensive player, and we can upgrade that foul to a flagrant one foul. So we have a lot of options when we do go to the monitor with the hook and hold play and mostly flagrant fouls. So, but the key to all of this stuff is to make sure you have a call on the floor. If you don't have a call on the floor, uh, it's, you, you can't really do much. This year, as a matter of fact, I had a play, I had Texas Tech at Iowa State this year, and I had a call at the very end of the game that, you know, you talk about things going viral on the internet, Twitter, and all this other stuff. This play went viral. It went all the way around the country. And I never had so many people call me about a play in my life. And they said, wow, what were you thinking here? And I, it was really kind of an interesting play. And if we have this thing called a cylinder foul. 
And it involved a cylinder, it involved a three-point shooter, it involved an offensive foul, it involved a flagrant foul, it involved a flagrant two foul. I mean, all these things were at play. And you talk about a play that went viral. Everybody in the country, I think, saw that play. And it was really, really an interesting play because 85% of the people that I spoke with thought that it should that it shouldn't have been the way I called it. It should have been a cylinder foul versus the way I called it. And if I had called a cylinder foul on the play, the game would have been tied. Instead, I called it the way I did. And after all the stuff that went around the country, everybody like that, the most important thing was my boss in the Big 12. He's 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 a he's an interesting guy. He's a great guy to work for. And he's just real blunt to the point. He says, sent me a text back. He says, I'm good with what you called. <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's all that matters at the end of the day. That's right. That's all that matters. So, so last two things, um, well, no, it's not last two. So I mean, uh, block charge, you know, education on the block charge, but you mentioned cylinder right there, uh, for, for, in layman's terms, I guess what the cylinder play, how, how can you best explain that to fans to kind of give them a better education? Okay. This is great. Um, and I hope, I hope everybody in the country that ever watches basketball watches this, this video and listens to what I have to say. So the cylinder play was basically designed for perimeter play. And what was happening was defensive players were walking up onto the offensive players so closely that guys couldn't, they couldn't maneuver or couldn't make a basketball move. So there are certain guidelines that we go by. And one of the guy, well, I shouldn't say one, but the guidelines that we use is that the guy's able to pivot, pass, shoot, or basically make a basketball or dribble. So he's got to be allowed to make a basketball move. And if he's not able to make a basketball move through maybe a double team or a one person being on him. So imagine if I get the ball and I start to pivot and the, the, the defensive guy walks up on me so much that my pivot foot is in between his two feet. So he has invaded my space. So imagine that if like, here's my, uh, see if I can do this. So here's my pivot foot, and there's my if 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 my if if the defender's two feet are inside my pivot foot like that, then that's a cylinder foul, and we're supposed to blow immediately and just call a cylinder foul. Okay, so if the defensive players are not allowing me to make make a basketball move, then we can call a cylinder play. Now, if I'm double if I make a bad play and I'm double teamed up at half court, and as long as those players don't get up on top of me and I try to dribble through that double team. That doesn't mean that we just call a cylinder foul because he's trying to get out of the way or something like that. We're not going to reward somebody for making a bad play. But the problem is these defensive players have all of a sudden decided that we're not going to give you any room whatsoever. Okay. We're going to walk yeah. right on top of you. Correct. You've seen how many times have you seen that where they just almost like start chesting a guy up at the half court or wherever, and then they're not allowed to do it. So we've well, got and a you see a play. lot of you. You see a lot of elbows, inadvertent elbow, yeah. you could say, because if it's uh, against a malicious or flagrant, the guy, you know, that's a different story. But you see the offensive players just trying to pivot through and, and they're, they can't. And so a lot of times the defender will catch an elbow there and it is the onus is on him because he's in the guy's cylinder. 100% right. So that's why they came out with, with the cylinder thing is because a lot of guys were taking elbows and they were, they were you know, just trying to get out of the way or get, make a basketball play. And they were hitting guys with elbows, but if we, so again, we can use the monitor to look at these plays. And if we go over there 
and there's a play where the guy's in the guy's cylinder and he hits him with an elbow, then the onus is on the defender and we just call a cylinder foul. So it's to, it's to diffuse those situations from happening. But um, the problem with the cylinder play is it's really subjective. I mean, you're going to have different officials call it differently every night. Personally, I'm not a fan of there being any cylinder fit, uh, plays or fouls in the post. I think the post area is more where guys are on top of each other. Now, if a guy just walks a guy out and pushes him, that's different. But to me, if you're going to call cylinder fouls in the post and you have to be, you know, two feet away from the guy, well, the guy can just shoot right over the top of you from, from six, eight feet every single time. So I think it's more designed for the perimeter players, guys that are far away from the basket. So that, like you said about not getting elbowed and, and these, these wild elbows that were happening, uh, I mean, some guys were getting cream because they were in the in the cylinder of the player and somebody would just get them with an elbow. And rather than penalize the guy, the offensive player with the flagrant one for throwing the elbow, we're starting to penalize the guy for for invading the sp- his cylinder space. So it's an interesting but, philosophy, the double team in the post. Yeah. Where you kind of ah, that's not that play out here. Single one on one is. Yeah, I, I personally, I think it's more along the lines of it being out on the perimeter. Post play is tough. I, like I said, unless the guys really, really do a poor job and invade the space of the, of the uh, post guy, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time calling a cylinder foul sure. in the post. I hope I explained that well. It's, but yeah. like Matt, here's the biggest thing. It's really subjective. Like mm. I said, I had that one play and I think 85% of the people responded back that, that, that should have been a cylinder foul. One guy that is a good friend of mine who runs a D2 conference back in the Midwest, he sent it out. He has 85 referees. And he sent it out and he said 10 guys came back with that. It should have been an offensive foul. And the other 75 came back with that's a cylinder foul. So it's interesting when you talk about this stuff, because either we're not seeing it right. It's not being explained to us. Right. Or we need to get, we need to do a better job with it. Get on the same page. Well, I think that's the biggest gripe that coaches have is that when, when, when games are not officiated, uh, the, the same way, uh, sometimes within the same week, but a lot of times within the same uh, game that they're in or the same half, Hey, at this end, it was officiated this way at that end. It wasn't, I think a lot of times they read too much into it. They're, they're separate plays, but that is again, the perception. And, and so I guess, how do you, how do you, uh, we'll get, get to like block charge. Now that is something that some would say is subjective also, uh, defensive coach always wants a charge. Offensive coach always wants the block. So talking block charge, how do you officiate that consistently? And then also with the RA, which is uh, the uh, restricted area, that, that, that half circle below the basket, how do you implement that too in college basketball? We might have to have a whole episode on block charge plays. <laughs> Seriously, because there's so much, there's so much at stake now and, and, and the guidelines have changed so much. And then when you talk about the RA, so I hope I can explain this well. Um, it's funny. I don't agree with how our rule is written. I think our rule is, is poorly written. I think that we should start rewarding offensive players and, and go with when the guy gathers. So for instance, our, our block charge play as long as the defender has established legal guarding position with two feet on floor facing the opponent, when the guy leaves his feet, you have until the guy leaves his feet to get into that position. So when the guy gathers the ball, 
and basically is going in and he takes his his allotted you know they say one and a half steps when realistically it's more like two especially with the euro in there when the guy goes to to the basket before his the tip of his foot leaves the ground as long as i'm there it's a charge you know and they say well he was late you would be surprised we call probably way too many defensive fouls versus offensive fouls a majority of the time we call it a block and it should be a charge and i know a lot of people think well that's stupid because but it's not technically we're right but the rules poorly written and i tell coaches all the time so that should have been a block hey change the rule if you change the rule it's different okay so getting back to block charge plays what's what's really interesting is then they then they throw the the restricted area in there with us and they say okay now you got to referee this so if the defender is in the restricted area and there's a block charge play then it's automatic it's it's an automatic blocking foul as long as he's in the arc so if he's outside the arc then it's a you know you, you you just referee it and you adjudicate it accordingly. Now there's times where the guy's in the arc, the lead official will call uh, a charge, and then you as the outside guy got to go in and say, hey, his foot was clearly in the arc, and then you change it to a blocking foul. So that makes it hard. Where the NBA really really does a, a great job with this is they have they have two things they have the the lower defensive block, and they have defensive three seconds. So when the help side defenders come over, they're coming over from across the paint. Okay. So they're coming all the way over from the other side to help with that play in the college game. If you, if you've ever heard an assistant coach, and I guarantee you've heard this, this term a number of times being right there by the coaches. Have you ever heard the term helpline? And that's like the center of the court where they tell their guys to get to. So they can stand in the key. So our help defense in our, in our game always comes from underneath the basket or in the center of the key. And that's what makes our game so much harder to referee the restricted area because our, our help defense is coming from the restricted area rather than the NBA whose help defense is coming from across the key because they have defensive three seconds. We don't have that in our game. And with that being said, it makes block charge plays two things. It makes them harder to call or especially restricted area plays makes them harder to call. And we have more of them. We have more decisions to make on that play because our help defense comes from under the basket. Now regarding ball charge, you're right. It's very subjective. Some guys pick up the defenders late. The most important thing as what I tell guys, like when I'm teaching or talking to guys is the more information you have on these plays, the better chance you have of getting them right. So if I'm the lead referee, I could care less what the ball handler is doing. So I'm not even looking at that guy. All I'm focusing on is my secondary defender and the guy who's going to get me in trouble. So if I can get to that guy right away and I pick him up and I see where he's at and according to the RA and whether he's going to get legal or not, the more information I gather, the probably the better chance I have of getting a play right. And I would say that the better referees do that more often than not. I think a lot of guys, the reason that they miss block charge plays is because they get surprised. They're watching the offensive player. They might be watching the primary matchup. And then when it gets to the secondary area, they're just totally guessing. They get to it late and they just take a stab. I mean, they almost take a stab in the dark. It's almost like rock, paper, scissors out there. I mean, <laughs> you, you're just guessing at that point. And that is the one thing that I am adamant about my pregames. Let's not guess out there. 
and I refuse to guess. But that's what it becomes at some point when you're not picking up the secondary guys. And that's why I think that you see the, the, such a variance in how people call block charge plays is because guys are guessing. They get to it late. I think we could get, all get on the same page and see the same, see it the same way. It would be different. That's why, like you said at the very beginning of this, coaches see a call at one side and then they see a call at the other side. And, and you know, one guy called one and then another guy called another. Well, the one guy might have got it right because he was watching and paying attention to what he needed to. And the other guy was just guessing. So, you know, you bring personalities involved into this whole thing. So there's a lot that goes into play with these block charge plays. And then just the rule just being tough. I think they need to go to the gather. And if you saw the gather, I think you'd see less decisions on block charge plays and things like that. I'll tell you what's interesting. So the Duke North Carolina game, when we had that game, we talked about this and the same thing in the UCLA game, we talked about, okay, guys are going to, nobody in this game is probably going to slip in to take a player control foul guys. The Duke guys are so big and they were big. They're going to let guys go and they're going to try to block shots. So we got to be really good at letting them block shots. It's not penalize them for fouls there. And so when you have games like that, you don't have the block charge play, like say you might have at, I'm trying to think of some teams that, that you know, you, like Stanford. Stanford's going to take a lot of block charge plays. That's just how they are. They're educated. They're, they're smart. They're going to go to where the ball is, and they're going to get there. I'm not saying that everybody's like, but, you know, some teams are going to take more than others, whereas some teams are so big, they're going to say, okay, I'm going to let you get by me, and then I'm going to block your shot when you go by me. So that's where it's, in, it's important to know what kind of personnel you're dealing with during games. Oh, oh, big time. Yeah. And, and yeah, as, as far as, you know, block charge, you talk about gathering, basically picking up your dribble and starting to elevate versus when you physically leave the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those that don't know, the lead official is the official underneath the basket. Uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 the center official is the one free throw extended roughly. And then the, the trail is the other official for the, uh, that is out by half court and, and the officials, they rotate around. So you, you're going to be one of any three of those throughout the game, but the lead official, as you mentioned, Tony does get the bulk of the uh, block charge plays we'll say. And uh, yeah, you yep. can't be surprised because it'll blow up on you. It does. And that's, and that's why we miss, we miss so many plays. I would say that's why we miss, you know, everybody says that we miss 90% of the plays we miss is because of positioning. I disagree. I think 90% of the plays we miss is because we're surprised. And trust me, I see, tons of film to back that up we get surprised by plays and that's why we miss plays yeah that that's was the, the number one reason. thing they, they said at umpire school he said the worst thing you can happen is be surprised and they just said it all yep. the time and it it it, it it's, rings true it, it's it's so true and the other thing i don't mean to go off topic but the gather thing too is interesting because in our game we get this all the time and it's and it's so hard to do but to wave off a basket, you know, you'll see a guy get fouled and then he takes an extra step. And then all of a sudden we're waving off the basket. Trust me. We do not like to wave off those baskets. Everybody thinks, Oh, you just ruined the game by not letting them score. You know, there's two words that I use probably at least 10 times a game. And those two words are by rule. That's it. Coach will say, Oh, that should have counted coach by rule. That's not a shooting foul. Yeah. By rule, that's a restricted area play. By rule, that's a cylinder foul. So, you know, I would say that I preface every conversation with by rule about 50% of the time. 
And then they said, well, that's not right. I said, okay, change the rule. Yeah. Our, it's not our job, but, but by rule is a good thing. But anyways, getting back to that, Dick Carmel <laughs> has the greatest guideline for shooting fouls. It's, it, and it, it, it resonates so much according to these, these, these types of plays is he goes by uh, plant foot. So guys don't do anything in basketball until they plant their foot. So think about it. When I'm going to shoot, I plant my feet and I shoot. A jump shooter will plant his feet and shoot. Okay. Imagine a guy going to the basket. They dribble drive. They pick up the ball. And think about the Euro step. They plant, then or they, they go off one, then they go on to another. And then when they start their upward motion, their plant foot hits the ground and then they start up. That is the greatest guideline I've ever seen as far as shooting, actual shooting motion in, in the college game. The pro game is different, but mm -hmm. in the college game, the plant foot and the guideline for using that to establish whether or not it's a shooting foul is by far the greatest guideline. I'm, if you go by plant foot, you probably never get it wrong. Very rarely. Oh, no, that's that's a good one. Yeah, you do see much more continuation in the uh, NBA. But as you mentioned, two different games, two different roles. I remember when I was very first starting in, in officiating, a couple phrases they told us. There were two. They said, yeah, in a conversation, always, you know, try to use by rule, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then you better know the rule. And then also, hey, in my judgment, always, it was like, if you use those two phrases. A lot of times you at least sound like, you know, what you're doing for us, uh, us amateur officials, officials, but you actually back it up with real knowledge. Uh, that just took me back. Sometimes, there. sometimes, so sometimes like, I'm over there making it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, you know, talk about instant replay, how it has evolved. It seems like there's so much more replay now, especially at the end of games. And then what ultimately, when you're looking at replay, is that is that clear evidence that makes you switch something? What is the guidelines for upgrading to excessive contact? Talk to me about uh, replay and how it has evolved. Okay, so, you know, before replay started with timing errors and it, you know, it started with... Uh, Gosh, I can I just remember timing errors really. And then all of a sudden, the last two minutes of the game, it became, you know, they started they started opening it up for for like out of bounds plays. And 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 okay, so I'll even show you show you the evolution of this thing. So it had to be, it had to involve two or more players. So if a guy stepped out of bounds, we could not review that. And so uh, anything involving out of bounds, we can review now. And then and for instance, I don't know if anybody saw, I think it was the Kansas North Carolina game in the championship game. <coughs> oh yeah. The end of the game, the guy yeah. stepped out of bounds. <laughs> okay. That, that play was not reviewable before. And so there's a situation where instant replay is beneficial from two standpoints. One, you're going to go over and you're going to get the call, right? And number two, I guarantee you that the clock did not stop when that guy stepped out of bounds. So you're so it enables us to get not only to play right, but it enables us to put the exact correct amount of time back onto the game clock, which I think is critical there. So you're doing, I think, critical. I can't remember the exact specifics of that, but I think the guy stepped out of bounds and maybe it was like 3.7 and they were able to go to 4.3 versus 3.7. And in the NCAA tournament, we're not using precision timing, which is the device that we use so that when our whistle blows, it actually stops the clock. So we weren't using it there. So we're using, you know, a, there's a person over there that's actually doing the, the stopping and starting of the game clock. So when they're doing that, it's important for us to use instant replay to get that right. So we're allowed to use it now for out of bounds. 
under two minutes. We're allowed to use it for restricted area plays under two minutes. We're allowed to use it for shot clock violations, timing errors. Um, it's more, there's more shot clock opportunities to go to the monitor regard in, in during the other parts of the game. Whereas if, if somebody shoots the ball and it's close to the horn, and it's a really, really, really hard call to get right because a majority of the time you can't hear the horns and you're, you know, that's what you're listening for. It's hard to look through and see the clock and, and see all that other stuff. So you're, you're listening for horns and, you know, it's so simultaneous and it always seems like when I'll, I'll just say this, whenever you think that it was, it was, it's really close. It's always going to be not good you'd be surprised like guys will come out and they'll say this is going to be close and I'll say then it's not going to be any good and I've told guys you know Vern Harris and I had a game this year and I said this is going to be close and he goes and it's not going to be any good and I said I don't think so either and we were right it wasn't even close it was no good so we can look there for that the interesting one there's a few interesting ones and it happened a couple of years ago. Um, they changed the rule in the Kentucky game. I don't know if everybody, people probably saw it. it as a big game, Kentucky LSU, where a shot went up. There was goaltending involved. It was under two minutes. They didn't call it. And now we're allowed to use the monitor under two minutes to review goaltending, offensive basket interference, and goaltending plays. And I think this has been in this has been involved. I think for at least two years, maybe three. Um, I, I'm not sure on the specifics of when it was when they put it in, but we can go to the monitor re to review basket interference, our offensive goal tank, as long as we call it on the floor. So if we don't have a call on the floor, you can't stop the game and say, oh, I want to go review that. You have to have a call on the floor. So this year or in past years, I went without ever having this play ever happen. I, I mean, I've gone at least two years without reviewing one goaltending play. And, and it was just, it just never happened. And I'll tell you what, I couldn't believe it. So I have the Texas tech, Kansas game at Kansas and we call defensive goaltending against Kansas and we're under a minute or we're under two minutes. So we go look at it with one twenty-two to go in the game. We go look at it. And it is so close that it was remarkable how close it was. It was like, I, I look at it from one view and I'd say, okay, that's goaltending. I look at it from the other one. I don't think it is. And so it was so, you know, there wasn't anything there to change our minds. So you go with, you know, the call on the floor, right? If there's nothing there, you got to go with the call on the floor. So we go from there. Now Kansas has a ball in the very next possession. We have the exact same play. And I call bass. I call goaltending against Texas tech. And we go look at it. And the first look I go, Oh, that's clearly goaltending. Then they showed us another look and I go, Oh, great. This thing's really close. So there's a situation where in two possessions, I had never had this play happen in my career. And in back-to-back -back possessions in one game, I did it twice. And then the very next night I had it again. So, wow. and then I never had it the rest of the year, but that's another situation we can go to the monitor. Um, the out-of-bounds plays, which really changed, used to be involving two or more players. Now we can go look at out-of-bounds no matter where it's at or what, or under two minutes. No matter if it's one person, two people, if it's a deflection, rebound, whatever the case may be, we can look there. But it's really impacted the game. And now this is what I hope the fans listen to. When we go to the monitor, it usually takes a lot longer than we like to. And I don't know if you and I have ever <laughs> talked about this. I'm sure we have. But there are certain techs that are really, really, really good at their job. 
there's a guy at UNLV named Chris Sheldrick who is tremendous. And I, Matt, I'm not trying to blow smoke up, you know what, but you were really good at your job when you were the replay guy at Fullerton. There are some people that are really, 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 really good at their job. Now, there are some people that aren't so good. I've gone on the monitor, look at plays, and I've seen a blank screen for over a minute when I'm over there. So if they think we're over there just like enjoying no. ourselves, there's been times where I've looked, I've gone to the monitor to look at plays and all I see is my back on the screen and we see our backs for over a minute. So there's times where, yeah, we get the right look right away. And there's other times where we don't get the looks that we need and we're trying to explain it to the guy, but a lot, almost all of it has to do with the tech that we're dealing with. And I'm not trying to throw any techs under the bus, but no, no, for sure. Everybody thinks that we're over there and it's, Oh, this is taking way too long. Trust me. We hate it more than the fans do when we're over there for longer than we, than, than, than we want to be. Now, there are times where we are really trying to dissect. I mean, like, for instance, a flagrant two foul. We might be over there, and this is you're deciding whether or not you're going to throw a guy out of the game. So we yeah. might take some time on that one. But for the most part, it's really because we're not getting the look that we really want. And the other thing about instant replay that nobody really understands is they'll say, oh, that was obvious. But we won't get that look that maybe the TV guy sent to the general audience. Sometimes we don't get that look for some reason. And I was told the tech, okay, hey, we're getting everything that the home viewers seeing, right? And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, you got everything. And then I'll pull my laptop off and I go, son of a bitch. Wait, I never saw this look out here. And this makes it, this is easy. And we never got that. And we didn't go with the call. that We went with the call on the floor and we should have switched it or something like that. It's, it's really frustrating from that point of view with instant replay. Now, I will say this. I think that we're stretching instant replay to too much. I think that we're allowing us to go over a little bit too much. I think it's like the robotic umpire. I think there still has to be some, some humanizing that goes into the game. I think that it's just, you know, there's going to be some, some mistakes. And I get that. We're trying to be almost like a little bit too perfect with instant replay. And I think we're, we're allowing a little bit too much, for instance, to go over there. So with that being said, I don't know. It's not going to go away, I can tell you that. Because, oh, there's, oh no. like I said, there's too much at stake. It's the safe first, safe, better safe than sorry kind of mentality. Yep. And, and I'll say as a tech, you know, there are times I would have rather worked, uh, worked a five-hour plate job than to have those 90 seconds of pressure, <laughs> you know, uh, the, getting the tech because the, you guys are up there sweating and working hard and – uh, sometimes for the replay tech, you, you go to all your angles first. Hey, here's this one, two, three, four. But then sometimes the broadcast will show a slow motion of another camera that you don't have. So then you as the tech have to replay the replay, like record that real quick so that you guys can see it. So sometimes it's a process that isn't as, isn't as quick as you'd like, but, but it's, it's ultimately good for the game, I think. Well, that's the part of being a tech. And I know it's got to be hard work because the problem with it is they're tr the tech is trying to show us the play. And what's happening is they're capturing plays that are coming in from replay. And you, so, so this guy's trying to do two jobs. So as the play happens, he's trying to get it up for us to see. And then he's got to capture all the replays that TV is sending him. So he's trying to do two jobs at once. And it's not, I know that part of it's not that easy. And there's been times I, I I'll never forget this. I was at I was in Omaha doing a regional game one year, and we had a really tough play. 
and this is going to borderline on a flagrant two foul. And all of a sudden it was like, this is a big play. And I walked over and the tech was like shaking, trying to do everything. And I said, okay, <laughs> settle down. Everything's going to be fine. No one's going to die over this. Just give me that. <laughs> give me the remote there and I'll run this. You just start capturing every single angle that you can. And the guy after that, the guy was great. He settled down and he started capturing all the stuff. And, and there's a, we have a, we have like a little toggle thing and it's got a live program and then it's got A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I think. I, it's got plenty of spaces. I just literally started going A, B, C, D and looking at all the camera angles. So depending on the game, sometimes you might have three angles. Sometimes you might, like at the final four, they said, okay, we'll have 36 cameras available for you guys. And I'm like, okay, we won't miss much. Yeah. Somebody said they had 75 cameras at the Super Bowl, which is pretty remarkable. Oh, but yeah, oh, Lord. so I mean, that... we had 30 some looks at at the at the final four. So, oh man, I, I love. Luckily, we didn't have to go to the monitor for that. No, oh, yeah, you, you, <laughs> I'll say uh, we've talked a ton about basketball. Uh, I have a few random questions to wrap it up. Yeah, uh, here, you know, you talked earlier about the final four being your your one in whatever your first one being the fastest two hours of your life. I think we just had the fastest two hours here, Tony. We've talked for almost two hours. Is it two hours? Really? Yeah. Yeah. No overtime. I promise. Uh, but, um, just a couple speed, speed rounds here. You've traveled a lot. You've been all kinds of cities. Uh, you're on the road. I mean, what are some cities that you just, you look forward to, or maybe you haven't been back to that. You're just like, man, that was a great experience in this great country of ours. What are some of the great cities Uh, to, um, Guys, there's a lot of good cities to travel to. Uh, I'm a big fan of Austin, Texas. It's kind of a neat little place. It's unique. I, you know, politics aside or whatever, I, I just think I don't know. There's something about Austin that I really like. Um, it's it's just different. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, I, I I see a lot of airports around the country. The Austin airport is one of the best airports that I've ever traveled in and out of that you'll ever see. Maybe that's what, why I like Austin so much. Is the, the airport there is incredible. But, um, you know, I've had the treat of working at, I worked a, a regional round and I worked a Sweet 16 game at Madison Square Garden. That's a big highlight to me. That might be even a bigger highlight than any of the Final Fours I worked. It was just so cool to go to the garden. And I got to work with two really good friends of mine in the business. We just got paired together, Vern Harris and Mike Reed, and made it even more special just being there with them. And it was all of our first time in the garden. And we we really did a nice job of taking it all in. I think that's the best thing about refereeing is like really trying to take in that that what we get to do and the privileges mm-hmm. that we have and the, the, the things that we get to do that a lot of people don't have the opportunity to do. But refereeing in the garden was really, really cool. Oh, man um yeah and we went there and we took the whole thing in like we went early and took the little trip around and walked around and there was nobody there they, we got there about history two hours before that they 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 opened the gate and we walked around and they have pictures up in the garden of every single of like 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 may 1st of you know whatever may 1st might have been and, you know, might have, May 1st of 1943 might have been some big fight. And they have a photo of that with May 1st. And then you look over and May 2nd of, you know, 1965 might have been a big event. And so they have all these pictures all around the whole entire uh, arena there. It's really, really cool. But, you know, Kansas basketball, that, that's like 
that's probably remarkable. I'll tell you what, if you're not, if you're a college basketball fan, that's got to be a bucket list thing is to go to a game at Kansas. It is it is truly a unique experience. And I was raving to my brother about how great it was. And then he actually went to a game there that I did. And he came out of the game. He said, you know, you didn't even pump that thing up as good as it really was. He says, it's amazing. <laughs> but Kansas basketball is pretty cool. You know, I still get a big, I still get a big thrill when I get a referee at Poly Pavilion. That's, that's, it's unique to look at the banners. Classic. And, yeah. And yeah, it's just so such a, it's just such a hollow ground to me, but um, you know, there's, I, I mean, it's such a privilege to do what I do and to see the things I've got to see and the work and the places I get to work and the history that, that, that is there. And I'll tell you what, the friends that I built through the years of, of refereeing and the camaraderie and, like, you know, you and I getting to know each other. There's a lot of other people that I've gotten to know. It's just, it's truly a privilege. It's very humbling. It's like, like, you know, working at the final four this year, I was the only guy west of the Rockies to go work. I was only one <laughs> of two guys west of the Mississippi to go work. The other guys in Texas. I mean, you know, you feel like you have this burden on you. Like you got to represent well and you do, you know, I feel like, Hey, I got to represent, but you know, there's so many guys in the business that that are are really siding with you and they really got your back and it's nice to know that and like i said the camaraderie is incredible and i've been fortunate to see some great places you know there's there's other times where um you know drive the drive to laramie wyoming is not very much fun I, that's a great story that's probably one of the funniest stories i ever had so larry shyatt who we get along good now he was the coach at wyoming at the time and I had about four plays in that game that were really hard, really hard. And after about the fourth one, that was a Dick Cartmel too. It's probably the best line I've ever had. Now, granted, you fly into Denver and you drive to Laramie, and the weather's never good. It's a crappy <laughs> drive. Seems like the wind's blowing about 80 miles an hour. Guys have hit deer on the way to the game. The last time I went to Laramie, I got stuck in traffic for three hours. Luckily, I went in the night before. It was an ice storm. It came in. I was literally on the side of this hill sitting there for three hours running my car just to stay warm. It was about eight degrees outside. Okay. With all that being said, I'm, I have four really hard plays. And Larry Shiat yells at me after the fourth one. We're going to media timeout. And he says, Tony, as soon as this game is over, I'm going to call Bobby Dibler on the phone. And you will never referee another game at Wyoming as long as you live. And I looked at him. I said, "Wow, Larry, you do that for me." <laughs> Please, oh, yes. Coach, yeah, <laughs> I never saw a coach go insane as fast as Larry did. He just turned around and walked away. Carmel's laughing. He says, "I think you just That's... got your wish." It's uh, it's tremendous. Yes, thank you. So that's like the old, but, uh, hey, you're missing a good game. It's like, yeah, you're right. I'm here. <laughs> I'm, yeah, no kidding. We got, we got in baseball. Speaking of things, you know, people always ask me all the time, they say, what's the best thing you ever hear on the floor? And I, you know, I've heard a lot of things, and there's some things that are really funny and this and that. But the best thing, the best line I ever heard, I was at Candlestick Park watching a baseball game. It was the 13th inning, and there were about 50 people in the stands. That was it, 50 people there. And we all walked down, you know, we all got down there. It was about, you know, it feels like it's about 10 degrees below zero there at Candlestick. This is back in the day. And I'll never forget it. Uh, we were watching the Astros play the Giants. And the best line I ever heard in a baseball game or anything to an official was this guy yelled out at the umpire after a baller strike, you know, of course. He yelled out, 
Hey, um, kick your dog. He's lying to you. <laughs> I never heard it before. And I thought, wow, that is really, really cool. That's really, I mean, that's that was clever. really thought out, really clever. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's really good. I'll never forget that as long as <laughs> I live. That's the best line I've ever heard. Wow. And I wasn't even working. A, I, was a, I was a fan. That's a 13th inning uh, comment for sure. And just yeah. like, yeah, yeah let especially me when get there's out 50 of here. people there. Yep. <laughs> well, well, Tony, the season's over. Uh, how long do you give yourself time to, to decompress before kind of starting things back up uh, for the next season, which I think goes in like October, I think, or uh, is it just, there is no off season. What, what kind of is the next few months for, I know you got your, your bail bonds business. Uh, you, you, you allow yourself to escape and watch some baseball still. What's uh, the next few months like? Well, I'm going to de I decompress big time. I get away from it. I get as far away from it as I can. And I won't do, uh, I do, I do a couple camps. I'm going to do a camp for Vern Harris, who's a really good friend of mine. I really respect Vern. So I'll go to Denver and do one camp there. Um, it's really a fun camp for me. Uh, my role there is really kind of cool. And Vern set it up just for me to do this. So it's really kind of fun. So I love doing that. And then I'll go do a camp up in Santa Barbara for Mike Cyphers too. And uh, those are the only two camps I do. Other than that, I don't. I get as far away from it as I can. I'm going to have a nice year this year. My daughter, one daughter's graduating from college, another daughter is graduating from high school, so I'm sure I'll be doing that quite. A, you know, those activities quite a bit. But uh, other than that, I don't do anything. I play a lot of golf. I play a lot of competitive golf at kind of a high level. I got my amateur status back in 16, so I've been trying to play all this high level amateur golf. And so I do that quite a bit and it keeps me kind of, you know, motivated and it keeps me, it keeps my kind of my competitive edge at a, at a, where it needs to be. And I won't do anything until September. And then September rolls around. We have our, our, our camp, our, you know, hopefully it's going to be in person this year. And we have a camp every year. Everybody thinks that we just get on the floor and we referee, but we have a, a three-day camp where we go all day, Thursday, Friday, and into Saturday where all the officials from out West get together and there's teaching, there's, there's breakout sessions and, and, you know, rule seminars and all kinds of things that we do. So I'll do that in September. And then that's when things kind of start to gear up and I'll start, then I'll bust out my laptop and I'll start looking at some plays and just kind of look at that. And I start doing a scrim I do as many scrimmages as I can. Cause I just, again, it gets back to the familiarity with seeing plays. Yeah. I want to see a bunch of plays before I get on the floor for the first time. So I'll do all that. And um, so around October, September, will kind of, you know, you start dipping your toes in the water and then, and then October, say 15th, 16th, 17th, I start doing scrimmages. And by the time November 1st rolls around, you're pretty much starting to plan accordingly yeah. and get, here, get here the season rolling. Yeah, Game one exactly. of 90, game one of 90 or 90 plus. <laughs> Let's get going. Wow. Well, yep. well, uh, Tony, this really has flown by. Uh, I hopefully the, the listeners got some insight into not just the experience, but also some education in the game. And uh, yeah, hey, enjoy your time on the golf course. Go uh, enjoy some baseball and, and whatever else. Uh, what, and those graduations, congrats on that. And congrats, Tony, on a third final four, man. I, I, you're one of the classiest guys in the, in the business, one of the best in the business. And I, I really appreciate you spending time with me today. Thank you, Matt. It's a, you know, it's a real pleasure to come on here. It's good. I, it really kind of makes me, I don't know, it, it, it kind of makes me, it shed, sheds light on all the things I've been able to do. And I really appreciate you reaching out and, 
I appreciate our friendship and I appreciate the, the, the time that you let me have here. And we'll have to do this again sooner before the, I can't believe it's already been two years. Yeah. So maybe, maybe before the season starts, we'll get together again and do this again. I would but love you're going to have, a, I would love that. Yeah, absolutely. And you're going to have, you're going to probably have a lot of editing to do in this thing to short. No, this not up. at all. Not at all. Yeah, let's, you will. Let's go. Yeah, you will. Two no, hour basketball a, game. No problem. I can talk another two hours. These, I really mean it. Well, we'll do this again. Maybe we'll catch up. Maybe yeah. there'll be some rule changes or something, but I'll reach out and we'll figure something out. And, but I look at, I truly appreciate it. I really do. All right. Definitely. We'll tell Pereira I said hello. And uh, okay, yeah, I will. we'll be talking. Thanks, Tony. Okay, Matt. Thank you. Well, the one and only Tony Padilla. What a uh, true gentleman. What a, uh, just a, a, a master of uh, the basketball officiating world. And just uh uh, someone I'd love to call a, a friend, someone that uh, is just so out, out, outgoing and giving of his time. And just uh, it's fun to chat about the game of basketball with someone of his caliber. So congrats again to Tony Padilla for his third Final Four, most recently worked uh, a couple weeks ago, Duke in North Carolina. What a way to end your season. And we're still rooting for him someday to get that Monday night assignment here. Maybe next year, maybe the year after, who knows. But we will definitely have Tony Padilla back on the podcast uh, he's a fan favorite. I know, and I know a lot of people are going to rave about this episode. It went a little longer. It's over two hours, but Hey, most college basketball games are around two hours. So if you can sit through a college basketball game, then you could definitely sit through this conversation I had uh, with Tony Padilla. What, what a gentleman. And man, I, I can't, I'm ready for some hoops. I'm ready for some baseball. I might even dust off the old golf swing too, after talking to, to Tony there. So uh, guys, thanks for tuning in on this episode of the get home safe podcast, please send questions comments uh, anything of that nature to me in in uh, in in response to to this episode uh, i really really enjoyed that we went uh, took a deep dive really into the, the philosophies and officiating to it at a, at a very high level so for you non-officials out there let me know if, if you found this interesting i sure did but i could talk this stuff uh, for hours and hours so uh man what a what a fun podcast for those that don't remember again june 9th of 2020 tony and i had our first conversation on the air that went, uh, that went very well, but I thought this one uh, was even better. So go check that back out if you want more Tony Padilla, and I will definitely have him back on here really, really soon. Man, I'm out of breath. I'm out of, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I want more. Let's, uh, let's, pl- let's play some more. Now, the game's over. That's it. Final horn. It's time to uh, head off into the sunset. Anyway, guys, have a great weekend, everybody. Be sure to tune in on Tuesday, as it'll be just me again with my random topics, uh, comments, and, and opinions on things as the world goes and sports. Uh, and then on Friday, we'll have another great guest for you uh, as we do have on our episodes here. Tuesday's just me and Friday's with a guest, much like today, although this episode will be very difficult to top. All right, enough out of me. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, get home safe podcast at yahoo.com for any uh, comments or questions or whatever. You guys know the drill, but I always throw it out there at the very end, just so you guys, for if we have new listeners, if they want to, uh, to, to chime in and, and follow us and, and support us, then that would be great. But anyway, guys, have a great weekend. Tony Padilla, thanks again. You are the man. And guys, to everyone else out there, as always, guys, no matter what you're doing, whether you're out on the town or round in third base, get home safe.